creeps. It's me, John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> and you're listening to Blake and Dion's Halloween Horror Movie Month Scary Sleepover Extravaganza. All October. That's right, my favorite month of the year where it has my favorite horror day. All October long, only on the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast. Many more screams come true, kiddies. <laughs> The amazing drama you're about to see is a matter of human record. You may believe it or not, but the real people who lived this story, they believe it. They know. They took that one step beyond. getting cold you can feel the uh the, that, that autumn air is coming in the autumn leaves <laughs> uh, da, 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 autumn da, 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 da. in new york oh, <laughs> in new york willow we so hypnotized <laughs> by the love <laughs> the telephone poles they Singing down the highway. It's all the hits. Uh, every band in the road. People <laughs> have this romantic <laughs> feeling. Also hypnotized by the love. They do it all. <laughs> Leave it on a jet plane. <laughs> no, no, I'll be back again. The music, Antonio Port Carlos Jobim. <laughs> No, the composer, Antonio Carlos Jobim. The music, Bazanova. The song, Grove from Ipanema. From obscure reference, right yes. there. Whoever <laughs> knows what that's referencing. Uh, God bless you. Yeah, God bless you. You know who all that I is. I love that it's like, in that, like, Sinatra, they're just sitting there, and Sinatra's, like, smoking a cigarette, and then you see, like, Sinatra, like, Picking the tobacco out of his lips. <laughs> because he has a filter list. Out of his lips. The mood. Fuck. <laughs> anyway. Oh, this is live. Gen G. Uh, I knew a, um, I still know a stage manager who toured with him and Barbara Streisand in the later end of his career in the 80s. And uh, he would tell me all the crazy stories of like, you know, at three in the morning, you're like, you're going out with Frank. And they would all designate, like, who's drinking with Frank tonight? And you'd go out all night. But the problem was is that. It's like you hear these stories about like Jackie Gleason where it's like they party all night, but they are able to sleep all day while the our, our capacity, our call is like, you know, yeah, nine yeah. in the morning. So you're all banged up the next day and you can't be like, I was out with Frank, you know, because it's like, who the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do your job. So that's funny. But then he used to, I think the, he was, he had a uh, sponsorship with Chavez Regal, but he, he only drank Jack Daniels. So he would just pour it out and pour the Chavez Regal and then he'd have it on stage like, cool, refreshing. <laughs> and I don't even know if Chavez Regal looks like Jack uh, Jack Daniels, but I digress. So, 
We're here. This is exciting. I'm really excited about this one. You're excited about this one? I'm excited yeah. about this one, too. I will say, though, it was it's a tall order. Yeah. Um, not just for any kind of table setting, but not only is it a double feature. Yes. But yes. there's like five stories per movie, so like I'm all confused. <laughs> I know. We got a lot of stuff. We got a lot of stuff. We're gonna I got like, t- there's like 10 stories. I, 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 yeah, they're all mushing together. Before we started recording, I was thinking, I'm like, I hope. Dion's gonna have to like remind me what each story is, yeah. even though we just watched them. And we we both bought the novelizations, which I think is pretty awesome. And we read the novelizations for this podcast by uh, Jack Orlick, yeah. L- uh, who also was a writer and artist for the original EC. So what we're doing tonight, right? We're doing um we're we're representing a little amicus here, a little amicus or amicus. Yeah, we can get into amicus later, but we're doing a double feature of Tales from the Crypt from 1972, and then the sequel, which is called The Vault of Horror from 1973, aka Vault of Horror, aka Tales from the Crypt Two. So it is a tall order in the sense that we're doing a double feature, but they're kind of almost one movie because yeah. the plot is the same. I mean, the the whole we're under the same. Very big golf umbrella. Yeah. You know? But it's a lot of stories to a lot keep of track. Stories. Keep yeah. track. <laughs> five five per movie, so we got two movies, ten, yeah, ten stories. I like, there's a couple there where like, yeah. I don't even... I'm um, not, not going to remember <laughs> so like, what happened. We can, we, can, we can touch on all of them because uh, they're all pretty amazing in their own right. And then, um, since these are all from... To, uh, EC Comics, which we've brought comics, which we've EC Comics <laughs> <laughs> coming down. EC Comics, we got like EC Comics. I sometimes some do, I'll, when I listen back to the podcast, I'll sometimes like. Then he was action. <laughs> I get really excited, you know. Uh, what's the what's that joke? Maybe sh- maybe she'll uh, maybe it's well, what's the line from Twinkle Rainbow? Oh, it'll really relax. Yeah, it'll really relax him. <laughs> it's like the other guy. They had a show for a minute. It was called like Tougher in Alaska. And like, whoever hosted it, that was kind of his, like, it's always tough in Alaska. He's always talking like this. It's yeah. crazy. Whenever I watch Prices Right Now, it's like, included. Oh, yeah. Really low. <laughs> <clears throat> um, With so, a radio included. Yeah. Uh, uh, is it the same guy? No, it's not the same guy, is it? We grew up with no. Roddy. Yeah. No, he died. Yeah, just, he, he died. <laughs> Because uh, I get them all mixed up. I, I hear, like, to me, it's the same guy doing it. You know, they're so close to yeah. a certain extent. Although when they all become, like, the Price is Right, they would toss to him, and he'd be, like, in the mic booth, like, hey, yeah. you know. Like, crazy ties. It's like, <laughs> what's his name? Remember um, from uh, Double Dare? When they would, and then it would be Mark Harv. Summers. Yeah, and then he, he tossed to Harvey, and Harvey was the announcer, and he'd just be this, this guy with a mustache and, like, a sweater with big old glasses who was balding on top. He's like, <laughs> yeah. and I'm Harvey. See you <laughs> next time. And he would, if I remember correctly, he just was on a stool, like, in front of the audience on set, like, yeah. but just, like, behind the camera so they could turn to him, like, turn on the light. And he's, like, over there, like, reading his, you know, the paper. Yeah. Putting it out. <laughs> Okay, so because we're doing these movies, we figured, heck, we could talk about EC Comics, because EC Comics we touch on all the time, and uh, I'm sure we've actually covered them in other episodes, so I hope people aren't turning it off, but this is probably a pretty cool... EC Comics EC- again! Mom, they're doing EC Comics again! So, um, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I am Jay Blake. The J stands for Jarrell. Yes. And I am Dion Baia, and we are here um, in our second... Uh, uh, installment of our epic 2019 
horror extravaganza, horror mania. Horror month of horror October movies, Horre- sleepover yeah, extravaganza. Yeah, the heinous, horrendous uh, horror month of October 2019. Last week we did Trick or Treat. This week we're doing a double feature, Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror. Tales from the Crypt. Demon Knight. Demon Knight. Demon Knight's a good one. (laughs) I haven't seen Demon Knight since it came out. And all I really remember now that because I used to get it mixed up with Bordello of Blood is that like the Crypt Keeper on the cover has like a beret on. And yeah, maybe painting. I think it was their like their f- no, I think it's supposed to be that like he's like a director. Oh, okay. It's because like it's their first movie. Yeah, um, off of the TV series. Yeah, and the Bordello of Blood came later with Dennis Miller. Yeah, I remember that. Everhart. And it's like that was like the uh, the rough cut run to do like from Dustal Dawn. It's like I feel like you know, it's like <laughs> that was like the first attempt, and then they rejiggered it and they got from Dustal Dawn out of it. You know. Um, that's a lie, but uh, this is fun because if we look, if we go back down memory lane chronology, I brought up my friend Marvin Jones before, uh, who I used to hang out as a Marvin. child. Marvin, Marvin, <laughs> you think God got him heaven? <laughs> I shot Marvin in the face. Marvin's great. Marvin, it's funny because um, Marvin, I th- Marvin's full name is, and I don't know why I'm telling everybody this is Marvin Glenn Jones. But so at home, I think he's a junior. His serial number, <laughs> his social security number is four nine eight thirty five. His address is twenty five Beacon Street, Hamden, Connecticut oh six five one two. Marvin's middle name is Glenn, and I think he's a junior. So when he was at home, his mother would be like, "Glenn, so you know, you'd be up in the room." And you hear like Glenn, you didn't know, and then Marvin would leave, and I was like, oh, he has another name, you know. Then it, you know, it occurred to me, you know, and then it's like you knew a secret, you know, because at school everybody knew him as Marvin, so hmm. I'd be like, hey, Glenn, you know, and so I was like, I know, <laughs> I know, you know, I see you, I, know. I see you, past the trees. <laughs> I see you, turn around, turn around, come here, come here, come here, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, we're a we've been drinking. We're a little giddy. Yeah, exactly. We're on the couch. Uh, it was a late night because we had two movies and a whole two books to read, and we had comic <laughs> yeah, books and a bunch of comic book anthologies. <laughs> well, you know, we I mean, we started on this thing last last night. Yeah, yeah. It was a couple nights ago. I actually had to get my dad night sleepover. My dad had to go up into the attic and get out all my EC comics, and they're all in like um, you know the Tupperware bins. Yeah. So and it was it's in the back. He's like, I ain't going back. It's in the back back. You know, on the eaves where there's where it's not flat. So. <laughs> You gotta watch that you don't put your foot through. So that was like, Dad, I need to eat. And I was like, no, these aren't these are the Marvel comics. Put these back. Yes, you dumb fuck. <laughs> these are DC. So we got these out, and then we we, we tried to read some DC comic stories to fill we in had the gaps. Of the television show to watch. Then we watched some of the '90s TV show. I mean, we've been it's been 48 hours straight <laughs> yeah. of uh, preparing for this very moment. Yeah, no food. We've just been drinking uh, alcohol and water to stay hydrated. So I brought Marvin up because. Uh, when Marvin moved into our uh, school in fifth grade, new friend, I started hanging out with Marvin, and I would go to Marvin's house because he was in the neighborhood, and I would—he was my friend. I would draw with. We'd make comic books. I've probably talked about him before. He introduced me to a lot of the George Romero movies. He was a big horror kid, and he had on tape this original 1972 Tales from the Crypt movie, and it was like you know like a like a shitty copy on a shitty tape uh, that he taped off of somewhere, and it was a. It wasn't like on TV. He taped it off TV, but it was probably like a premium channel, like an HBO or something where it wasn't cut. Yeah, and it didn't have commercials and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing because I'd never heard of this. But at the same time, this was right around 1989, 1990s when the TV show came out. So Marvin's family also had HBO. Uh, so by that time, I think my family only had like movie channel or something. But 
uh, Tales from the Crypt, the show, was on HBO. So he would tape them off the TV. So I'd go over his house and I, because it also aired late at night. Yeah. You know, it was like 9, 10, 11 o'clock. So I would watch episodes Marvin taped there with him. And then, you know, we would go to like Creep Show. We would watch Dawn of Dead, Day of the Dead, all this stuff. So I have very fond memories of being over Marvin's house watching the 1972 uh, movie Tales from the Crypt. And I didn't know until years later uh, that there was a sequel, The Vault of Horror which I saw probably in the early 2000s, which is just as good too, you know, Amicus and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, it's really fun coming back and seeing these because f- for years, I don't know if people really knew about these, you know, as, let alone even Amicus, the studios, you know? Yeah. Um, do you remember any time you first saw this or even the TV show? I don't think I saw Vault of Horror until tonight. Yeah. Um, Tales from the Crypt, the 72 movie, I don't know. It's one of those. I don't know when I saw it, because it's one of those things that after I probably, you know, I probably revisited it in the two thousands. I don't know if it's because of you or I just happened to find the very thought of you. You know, MG. I think it was MGM put out like a double feature. Oh, midnight, D- midnight DVD, movies, midnight movies. Yeah. With this and yeah, the two of them <clears throat> on there. Yeah, and that's maybe when I first saw Vault of Horror. And uh, so I revisited Tales from the Crypt at some point but it was one of those things that like as I was watching I was like oh yeah I remember this so at some point I saw it earlier and uh so watching it tonight it was it was a but like watching it then I don't know but sometime within the last 20 years I was like oh yeah I kind of remember this movie so I had seen it at some point when I was younger I just don't remember when it's one of those things where like as, as it's occurring you're like oh yeah I remember this and that and you know at the time I probably didn't know that that's what it was yeah but, um, there's so many of these too you know I, I just know there's also just like the first one I I personally didn't like Vault of Horror as much as I liked Tales from the Crypt yeah um, Tales from the Crypt there's also just like iconic stuff in it yeah um, obviously they all come from the comic books well, that's another great thing. But the stories themselves <clears throat> are just, I don't know. To me, it's like they're almost urban legend yeah. <laughs> in a weird way. It was like, there's this movie and there's the story where he's got to walk through the razor blades. Yeah. Or like, you know. Santa they, Claus. Or and she makes the wish <clears throat> on the, like, the thing, yeah. on, the, on the figurine. Well, that's even, I never, I should go back and investigate that short story because that, that's of infamy, the 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 monkey's claw because yeah. that they even did that i remember that being the first or second episode for are you afraid of the dark the 90s the uh, anthology children's nickelodeon show yeah you and there's also <clears> i think <throat> one of the simpsons halloween special does a take off on it oh yeah um the monkey's paw yeah by ww jacobs uh I think the uh, and so I don't my the short short answer is I don't remember what I saw yeah tales from the crap but it seems like it's always it's always been a part of me Dion it's always been you <laughs> it's always been there I think the uh, are you afraid of the dark was the tale of the twisted claw no, we don't want to get sued for that you know? <laughs> um, and then the how about the HBO show with the crypt keeper and you know well I didn't have cable let yeah. alone HBO I mean at my dad's house but we w- we wouldn't have watched tales from the crypt there. Um, so I didn't start seeing it until, unless I remember watching it in a hotel room once. Remember what episode it on was? A, it was, I think, the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, okay. Directed episode. Amazing. And yeah. uh, 
maybe it was in... I don't remember where we were. It was with my stepdad. When you guys were on the run. <laughs> we were on the lamb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then at some point, they started airing it in yeah. syndication. Like Fox, right? Like later yeah, night. like the Fox affiliate in, all, in the Albany area used to run it at like midnight yeah. on Fridays. I would have said Saturday nights, but we usually... I think watched my step. My parents usually watch like SNL on Saturday nights, so it must have been Friday nights. Yeah, I feel like whatever the new, the current version of Outer Limits was probably on at eleven thirty. That makes sense after the local news. Yeah, on like CBS or one of the regular networks, ABC, NBC, and then we'd flip over at midnight, <laughs> and from midnight to one in the morning, me and my parents would watch Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. You know, cut the shit with yeah. commercials. Yeah, what can you do? At least you're seeing them, you know. I mean, for me, the identification at the time of seeing this wonderfully new show was like, uh, you know, the I think the amount of people that were in it. Like, it wasn't just a great anthology show that, for the most part, borrowed from the old comic books, the stories. It was actually every episode, for the most part, you'd have huge celebrities. Yeah. You have Christopher Reeve. You said Schwarzenegger. I mean, any, uh, you know, Joe Pesci. Danny DeVito, maybe Danny DeVito, but Tim Curry, anybody, you know, they were they would show up and hugely directed people, you know, people, you know, monumental directors would come That's and do because, a thing. I mean, like Joel Silver and Walter Hill and Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, or, and Donner came all together. They were all pro- executive producers, so it brought a lot of clout, but I yeah. feel like, I mean, we might have talked about this last week. Uh, I, uh, I can't remember, but um, I feel like we, our childhoods are, when we grew up, it's a very specific time. I mean, of course, like the 60s and stuff had the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits, the original runs of those kinds of shows, and then Hitchcock Presents and, and those things. But like beyond, yeah. all that stuff kind of got uh, revived in our childhood. Yeah. And then you had guys like um, Romero and his producing partner uh, <coughs> do like Tales from the Dark Side, and then we had re. We had like new Twilight Zones, yeah, in the 80s. new Hitchcock presents, amazing stories, amazing. Then Spielberg and Ray Bradbury, Bradbury had a show, yeah, Ray Bradbury Theater. So all that stuff, like the the idea of anthology, sci-fi horror, as well as all that stuff was syndicated too. Television, like, really made a huge comeback in our childhood. Sure. So I think, like, for people of our generation. All that stuff made like a really big yeah. impact on us, whether we know it or not, because there was just so much of it. Yeah. And then I think the, like the culmination of all that, like the pinnacle of all that, was HBO yeah. doing this Tales from the Crypt television show, which you know on HBO you could push the boundaries a little bit more. Like you were saying, like it had the clout to bring in these big stars. Not that the other shows didn't have big stars, yeah. but it was like kind of another step of like caliber of star people that were really like some of them were in their prime like they didn't need to be doing it yeah but like, it, it wasn't like Demi Moore on an episode yeah yeah, this yeah, was yeah like, she marrying the fat guy it's like it was it almost became part of the shtick was that who what famous person is going to be on next week's episode you know yeah. so I, I would imagine in the industry that was the thing like have you done an episode of tell you know like you used to see in the 50s or 40s like suspense radio show did that you know every week yeah. you'd have somebody really famous new coming up not only that but then you had all these a-list directors directing episodes and a-list composers yeah 
you know, you have all the, all the, you know, several of the guys that I interviewed for my book did episodes of the Twilight Zone, 80s Twilight Zone, and then Tales from the Crypt. I mean, like, John Frankenheimer did an episode where Bill Conti did the music. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so not only just... That's of Tales from the Crypt? Tales from the Crypt, yeah. yeah. So not even just the stars, like the on-camera talent, but... The talent behind that, the talent that the show was bringing behind the camera, yeah, also was pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, you had Arnold Schwarzenegger directing episodes yeah. <laughs> with the guy from Pretty's Honor and Christmas Vacations in that, and then other guy who's the boyfriend to uh, what's her to uh, Ro- what, Roxanne uh, Daryl Hannah. Yeah, and then Terminator. Oh yeah, she, he's, he's a Terminator. Uh, what's, her, what's her name? Uh, uh, Ginger's boyfriend. You know, I'll fuck you up, man. <laughs> <laughs> With the pillow, uh, he's in it. Great app, but it's like th- so. The other thing for me is when you you like you, you said you couldn't escape these things, especially like at night when you you know you, the sun would go down. No matter you know we had a limited amount of channels. You switch channels. And at some point, you're going to see a Night Gallery, you're going to see a Twilight Zone, you're going to see a Tales from the Dark Side. And these were frightening. Yeah. Like the and in- all the old stuff was... That's what it, I mean. Yeah, yeah it was, it was syndication. syndication on top so of you, it. So, like, anywhere you turn, you're bound to find this as a child. And they were frightening, but for me, a lot of the stories stayed with me, even up until the Tales from the Crypt. There's so many freaky episodes to me, like the, the notorious Morton Downey Jr. episode that I love. It's like, they, f- they generally frighten me because I'm watching it probably alone at night. You know, yeah. with the lights out, you know, it's maybe first run or, you, you know, uh, you know, because my parents would go to bed fairly early. So they would just say, okay, you know, you can hang out and stay up and whatever, you know. I mean, they trusted me. It's not like I'm going to go fuck around. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was playing with my toys and I had the TV on in the background. So, you know, you'd see some messed up stuff on TV, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and then I remember for some reason Tales from the Dark Side airing pretty late as well. So as soon as you'd see that, like, you know, there's another world and, you know, yeah. the music and then you'd see it flip. And it's like the negative, to, you know, the, and it's so frightening to me. And to this day, a lot of these stories, um, and that's another reason probably why when I was a kid and I went to the library and found the media section and then found those cassette tapes for the old radio shows, I was instantly uh, fell in love with them because I knew people like Vincent Price or whoever was guesting on them. And it was portable. You could take the thing with you and listen to it on your Fisher-Price record or cassette player and stuff. Yeah. You know, so it's just... Uh, and then when we, you know, you get into comics, and then we we see that these are all basically amazing. That these are all, for the most part, stories that were done in the, you know, that's what I loved about the Tales from the Crypt. Uh, you know, when they would intro this the story, you they'd have a little comic book, yeah. almost a cover, you know. And it's weird because a lot of them were, I think, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think the majority of them were borrowed from the original comic, or or not just from Tales from the Crypt, but the entire EC line of stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's funny to think that, like, um, you know, a British company in the 70s would be helped in reviving, you know, the EC comic with, with the Tales from the Crypt movie. They did another movie called Asylum, which doesn't have to do with EC comics the same year. And then I guess Tales from the Crypt was really well received. It made a crap load of money at the box office. They were able to then poop out the Vault of Horror the next year. And then I think they did a couple other um, anthology movies. Uh, Amicus. I got turned on to them maybe five or six or seven years ago. I, I either gave my wife or I got a box set, and it's uh, Peter Cushing, and it's like at the Amicus collection. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. It's like him with the skull. It's like half half his face and half it's kind of a skull. It's really weird looking, and it had um, three movies on it, 
and they were I've never seen them. It, had, it was Asylum, The Beast Must Die, and maybe Scream and Scream Again. I think they're called, and uh, they were amazing. Really, yeah. really, really, really awesome. And then, then that's when I started doing research, and I found out what Amicus Studios was. And uh, you know, for them just being the trying to grab some of that uh, uh, that hammer money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were trying to do uh, some. Yeah, Scream and Scream Again was was that. And they also did I Monster which is the Christopher Lee movie that's in public domain that has our man Michael DeBar in it. Uh-huh. You know, who, well, the only podcast that brings up Michael DeBar every episode. <laughs> uh, he's in that as, as, a, as a, you know, a very minor player. But, uh, yeah, ha- Amicus was trying to grab that hammer money that Hammer had been getting since the late 50s, and they came out in the, in the middle to late 60s, and, and they basically were doing the same kind of tales, but they were, they were for the most part, theirs were set in the modern world where yeah. hammers were done you know, in the more gothic tradition. They also you did know? a couple of Doctor Who movies in the 50s, 60s. Yeah, that's big, too, because they had Peter Cushing play the Doctor, and I know those are for, for Doctor Who fans, uh, but they kind of ignored the, the, the TV series' backstory of the Doctor because the Doctor Who debuted in 63. So those are big movies in, in Doctor Who lore for, for, um, for Doctor Who fans. So And then they, they, they put it around for a little while longer because into the 80s and 90s, they did one of my favorites. They did the... TV, Stephen King, sometimes they come back. They were affiliated with that coming out in 91. They did the not-so-good, in my personal opinion, sequel, sometimes they come back again in 1996. And they also did Lawnmower Man, which we're, we, we talk a lot about on the show here from yeah. 1992. Um, so Amicus was there and doing some pretty cool stuff for a while there and you know making some good, good money. And they had people like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in there signed. And those guys were like, sure, you know, I'll do it. So, you know, they, they were pooping money uh movies out like uh you know hammer was doing and stuff yeah um but uh i don't know should we talk about ec comics before we jump in sure yeah i guess um so these two movies we're gonna cover they uh <laughs> are kind of based off uh you know of, of uh, a, a very interesting um era in 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 uh I guess comic book history and even history for us because yeah, I mean, it relates to all relates to everything. Right? I know. And we touched on some of it with when we did Superman two a couple of weeks ago. We did. Um, it is a fascinating history that comics has, isn't it? And it's yeah. one of those things where, like, you know, I you know I'm certainly not uh, up on current comics. Yeah. Um. Uh, but I was a big comic book fan as a kid and. You know, I'd say, you know, before we started doing the show, I'd say I probably knew a little bit more than the average Joe about the history of comic books. But in doing this show, <laughs> we've we've gone down some pretty interesting alleys, yeah, and and uh, discovered more of the re- more of the uh, the history of of comic books, and it's an inter- it's a fascinating yeah. one. Uh, you know, I not it's not a surprise. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. But uh, it's interesting to go back and as we prepare for these episodes, and since so many of them have been comic book, uh, are so many of the episodes we've done have been movies that originated from comic books. Like it's been interesting to kind of go connect the dots. <laughs> yeah, like go through and be like, oh yeah, and fucking Max Gaines. You know, and yeah, and then be like, oh, that's the guy. It's Bill Gaines' dad. Yeah, and, and who's you know, and we talk. I mean, yeah, it's it's for me. It, it is the the amazingness of seeing how all this just connects. I mean, you know, you could take such an. It's almost like the what is that? The seven ways to Kevin Bacon or whatever. Yeah, you could take 
some abstract movie, Roxanne, and then somehow we can, you know, move it and we can bring it to like easy comics or something. Like, so many of the, the movies we have as topics of the show are when we go through the mull through the history of everything, you know, kind of touch on these, you know, when we, these rest stops, so to speak, when we get yeah. off the highway. And um, certainly, I'd say at least a half a dozen to like a dozen shows we've done, we've talked about EC Comics. Um, you know, we've we've, we've run by them and, and give them context, yeah, yeah. and explaining either the history of like you know Batman or the Shadow or comic books in the fifties. Like you just said, two episodes ago, we just Superman two. We we brought up EC Comics and their importance and all that. Yeah, and, we um, talked about Jack Leibowitz. Yeah, who ended up being a partner of Max Gaines, who started EC Comics. Yeah, you know, and um, it's like I the, the guy I I keep bringing up the uh, what's his Mal- Malcolm. Uh, Jamal Warner, <laughs> Malcolm Jamal Warner, <laughs> uh, Malcolm Wheeler Nix- Nicholson, the guy who like created comics, or was the guy that had the idea of not just doing comic strip reprints. He was the one that's like, hey, let's do, uh, you know, let's do something on its own. And he ended up running out of money and then giving selling the rights to I think what Detective Comics became. But then we talk about and you know he was partners with Max Gaines or was affiliated with Max Gaines and then Max Gaines is the guy who puts out the first comic book ever called Famous Funnies in 1934 so that's pretty amazing and then i didn't know the lineage of going down to his brother or i'm sorry his son and finding out that you know Bill Gaines cuz i also growing up was a huge mad yeah. magazine and and cracked magazine fan and Mads, I've been getting since I knew my friend Martin McHugh. Martin would get them, so that was a big thing. That when we go to the comic book store as a kid, you'd get whatever comics you want, and then you'd look at what the latest. You know, I didn't get every Mad, yeah. but if it had a cover, it's if it's you know uh, Lampoon and Batman, Lethal sure. Weapon, yeah. Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. You know, anything that was in the movies, you're like it's because we were also artists. I know Blake drew too, yeah. so we, we'd like to draw. We'd go home, and that was another thing. You draw on you know, the caricatures because they were so good or in the back of the magazines. It might have been Cracked that did it, where it'd be th- one picture, yeah. was it Mad? I think it was Mad. And then it would you'd fold it and it'd be something completely different, you know? And then also, you know, they pushed the boundaries of like, you know, with the sex. The girls were always voluptuous. They were much akin to the, the you know, the, the, uh, the illustrations you'd see in Playboy. Those one-page... Um, <laughs> You know those one page, you know, with one line, and there'd be a yeah. joke, a punchline. Yeah, like you a know, comics, like a like a comic, almost like a New Yorker. Comic, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, one of those like saucy ones, the Playboy version of it. Yeah, and Mad, you'd have like girls with you know very buxom girls, and you know, or just silly things. So I loved Mad growing up, and I can't tell you I when mean, I you fell were out a of kid Mad back then. Yeah, you, you took it where you got it where yeah, you got it where It's another thing for all these young people out there. If you want to get frank, I mean, you know, for for young adolescent kids who were sexual. <laughs> Suddenly realizing <laughs> their sexuality, be it whatever you're you were into, but for for Blake and I, for heterosexuality, <laughs> you know, you start seeing these things. You know, you can't. You know, that's like at night you're turning on Playboy. You don't get. You're trying to look through this. This. You know, every once in a while the scribbles would would even out, and you'd see something for a minute, and then it would get blurry again. You know, and then you know a lot of people. That's the big joke, right? These people would they would. F- track down their parents national geographic issue you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they did see you know nudity in that you know so in the old days you know even if you were able to find your your friend or your your friend's brothers or your parents like you know porno mag a playboy or whatever that was gold to know where that was in the house let alone that's not even a moving image you know yeah. if, if, if you were able to find a, a moving a, a dirty movie or x-rated movie that was like 
that would that was uh, that was like freaking you know McKinley's gold there <laughs> you know what I mean it's like so and then so I bring that up because nowadays I just feel like you can Google anything yeah you yeah. know you can just get on the internet and be like you know well, I don't know and it's like it's there where you know ours was like it was like Dora the Explorer I mean that's a bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I use that example uh, we're like Indiana Jones it was like that. you know the Sears bra ads was like Whoa. yeah the JC Penney's <laughs> wow you know, that was the so only thing even, you look at the toy section and then you go back like hmm. so even if you got cartoons or comics yeah. that was even kind of tantalizing because we were sure dep- we yeah. were depraved kids. and i think you know <laughs> and you see that a little bit like in the marvel and dc i think they knew that because sometimes i mean certainly when you get to the seth mcfarlane year seth mcfarlane um, um todd mcfarlane yeah you know when he was his amazing drawings but like in the 80s and 70s you kind of saw they were giving you a little bit the artists were like ah the kids are gonna <laughs> love this <laughs> You know, and you're like, holy poops. So, yeah. uh, why do we bring all this up? Mad. So, Mad Magazine. I loved Mad, and I didn't know that that uh, Bill Gaines, this big bearded guy you always see in the back, like this shitty black and white photo of some, you know, the creator, and he's like, ah, and he looks like, um, I don't even know what he looks like. <laughs> you know, he's like these big glasses, he got long the Romero hair. glasses, long hair, long big beard. He's like in a Hawaiian shirt that you can't really see too well because it's a black and white photo. And you don't realize, going back to the 50s, that's the guy whose you know father gave him or kind of uh, left him. left him this legacy that turned out to be EC Comics. Um, so Max Gaines, he puts the first comic book out in 1934, Famous Funnies. It was kind of the precursor to a comic book. It was the first four-color, saddle-stitched newsprint pamphlet. Yeah, which you know, in in, in the, all for all intents and purposes. Comic book wasn't around yet, so it wasn't no. called a comic book yet. Yeah. <laughs> so people that know what to, they were like, "Wow, it's a saddle stitched." Uh, wow, this is a beautifully saddle stitched four color pamphlet. Yeah, look at this periodical. Uh, then he ends up putting together this company called All American Comics, and that was, I guess, what like Green Lantern and Wonder Woman was getting put out under. Maybe even Superman because they were kind of tied to DC and Action Comics. Yeah, well, he was partnered with All American Publications. Was he was partnered with Jack Leibowitz, who also. Uh, was one of the owners of National Allied Publications, which we talked a lot about in Superman 2. Yeah. Because um, I think Jack Leibowitz and his partner with Ash- National Allied, if I recall correctly, uh, are the people that then um, hired Schuster and... Oh, um, yeah, Simon and Schuster. That Simon was Schuster. Uh, um, Spiegel and um, Schuster. Uh, th- when Siegel they, and Schuster. When they did uh, Superman. Yeah. So it's all kind of... Uh, under the same thing because then eventually I all think incestual. Uh, Max Gaines got bought out okay by Leibowitz <clears throat> and so that's I think I'm the, oh, ge- that is how DC Comics guess- made that I'm guessing that that's how Green Lantern Wonder Woman and Hawkman and the characters that all American publications had ended up in the DC universe because National Allied Publications is kind of that became DC eventually so I think that that's probably how all that happened, is that Max Gaines was working with Jack Leibowitz, and Jack Leibowitz bought out. And so Max Gaines then, after he, uh, after All-American Publications and National Allied Publications merged, uh, Max Gaines went out on his own, and he started EC Comics. But that was educational comics. Yeah, and they had the rights to, like, the Bible and stuff like that, so they're doing, like... Bible stories and <laughs> I guess churches, it wasn't public domain. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, and that's exciting. That that's a, there's copyright a, laws are really really yeah. tough. Yeah, back then, the 1909, we learned about that 1909 copyright law last year. 
they had to, you know, so they're doing like, you know, Bible and stuff. And, you know, there's a big market for that back then, you know. And you know, apparently I know, not big enough. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like, you know, you people will roll their eyes now, like, oh, Bible stories. Well, it's like, I think it was, they're making them like action packed. They're telling, like, you know, David and Goliath or whatever the hell, you know. Um, Moses, you know, the, you know, the movies that you'd see, those, those sword and sandal movies at the 50s. But like Blake says, it's not big enough to, to, to satisfy just that market. So they turn educational comics turns into um, entertaining comics, EC comics. And then uh, there is a tragedy where Max is killed in a boating accident up or in or near Lake Placid. And uh, he's die- he dies suddenly. And the mantle of EC comics is left to his son, Bill William Gaines. And I feel like it's a little of a, uh, it's a wonderful life story where uh, if Bill Gaines is Jimmy Stewart, he didn't really, his idea wasn't to be in the family business. He was going to go do something else. Yeah. He went to college for... Apparently his dad was really tough on him and... He went to Manhattan College or something in this... Yeah, his dad was very He went into hard. Like, the Air Corps or whatever, military, and then he was getting, I think he was getting a degree in education. I yeah. think he was going to become a teacher. Yeah. And then his dad died. And I see con- conflicting... And it sounds like he didn't have a, the best relationship with his father because you said his dad was like a hard man yeah, and like very demanding. Like Bill couldn't do every anything right. And yeah, he would say eyes. that to him too. Yeah, you know, yeah. and like you're never going to amount to anything yeah. kind of bullshit that you you hear. That luckily we didn't have to put up with. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like there was a certain generation where that was yeah. a, well, that my was mom kind of you know <laughs> that was an ongoing thing. I'll tell you. But I, I see conflicting uh, stories as to when it switches from educational comics to entertaining comics. Some say it's like late before Max Gaines dies, and then I see other stories that say that it was Bill that changed it from educational comics to entertaining comics. So uh, that's, I guess, all conjecture. I mean, I can see conflicting stuff. But anyway, so Bill Gaines, William Gaines, is... Uh, I think saddled with this business that he had no desire to go into. Yeah, he was he was reluctant, but I think it was his mom who kind of urged him to take to take it over. Yeah, he did forty two to forty six in the uh, Army Air Corps, and then he went to he was in New York University when his father died. So then he gets his father dies, and I guess what forty eight maybe his father is killed, and forty seven his father's killed in the boating accident. So he grabs the family business. Oh, he's going to become a chem- chemistry teacher. He's working towards that. And then so from 49 to 50, he's trying to figure out a, a niche with what he has, what his dad was putting out. Because at the time, it was very uh, genre stuff. They are doing like romance comics, westerns, crime comics, which they, was very popular at the well, time. Well, yeah, they were basically just writing whatever trend yeah, you see was, on TV was popular or at the TV. time. You so, see on radio or in film. So whatever the popular comic books were at the time, they were just trying to put out something yeah. that were like those. And I feel like, again, like Blake, I don't, I'm not up on current comic books. I love comic books, and I kind of still collect one-offs. Um, but I don't know what's going on exactly nowadays. But I feel like manga is doing this. The Japanese comics were, you know, in the older days, you had, you know, the romance comics, which is basically for, I guess it was for women, you know, going for the girls, where it was... Um, <clears throat> 
you know, just a ro- you know romance, you know, issues. And I feel like manga does that now. Like man, you can have you know kind of like soap soap operas or telenovelas and those kind of stories. But if, for me, that's like a lost genre. You don't really see mainstream. Yeah. For in, in my experience, Marvel, DC are putting out you know romance, but you know westerns is huge. So you have western crime. To, you know, we've talked about crime and you know those kind of sh- you know yeah. books are big. So they're trying to figure out you know uh, Williams trying to get a good angle and he's thinking like you know uh thinking of stuff he likes and one of the things that he loves is uh is this at this time where he brings in al well, uh, feldman they, they meet uh he meets al feldstein who brings who's an artist looking for work and it's my recollection that al is very good at drawing attractive women and so he uh hires he gives al a contract and he's going to do like a teen romance comic along the line of what we're talking about yeah but then like that trend kind of ends yeah before they even publish the first issue and so they were talking and al feldstein and it turned out bill Gaines and al feldstein who was uh, feldstein was a, a, a writer and an artist they were talking and they discovered that they both had this affinity for the old horror radio shows yeah which is, I think, what Dion's leading up to. Yeah. Um, you know, they liked shows like Lights Out, Witch's Tale, Inner Sanctum, Suspense. Uh, we've talked at nauseum about our affinity <laughs> for those yeah. things, to how, how amazing they are. But, you know, one of the things they do end up um, borrowing from that is, um, you know, Suspense had, in, uh, in the old days, the man in black played by Joseph Kearns, who I always love bringing up, Mr. Wilson, uh, who was a, a character actor in all those shows. But, uh, you know, like, uh, lights out had it you have these people who are the narrator and they're the creepy guy and, and particularly suspense kept it straight the entire time you know it's very scary very uh you know suspenseful uh inner uh inner sanctum also but lights out particularly would would have a guy you hear the door creak open and someone would walk in and then he would give these terrible puns that weren't meant to be terrible puns but it was just you know what can you do on radio yeah so that was kind of breaking the mood a little bit you know and they would tell you this really bone chilling tale and then the narrator would come back at the end and tell you know the guy got his comeuppance or whatever and a lot of these these uh stories were that kind of you know uh someone getting their just desserts or their comeuppance or you know you know almost these moralist moralistic tales yeah so they like that. That's a very, very, very popular uh, device on radio at the time. And radio is probably w- equatable to the television. You know, not, not even now. I guess it's even, I would say it's more. It'd be like maybe streaming. You know, if you look at film and then streaming content, that's probably what radio was back then. So they, they great idea. Bill and Al are like, hell, let's do comics like that. You know, and then I think their idea was uh, particularly to do horror. But they do do like... They put out sci-fi, they put out uh, suspense stories, they put out crime stories, and they might make them a little tougher, but their angle was they developed yeah. these horror, you know, first being the Crypt of Terror and the Vault of Horror, but then two issues later, the Crypt of ta- Terror becomes Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. I mean, it's an important moment. Uh, I think there's an, impor- there's an important moment in, in, in many, like, businesses yeah. or creative teams uh, where... Your followers, you're following trends, you're trying to keep up with what's popular, you're following, you're following. And then there's sometimes the people that are successful or the creative teams that are successful and is that they get to a moment where there's a switch where they go from following to leading. But and sometimes unknowingly, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. but they they went from being 
Like we'll put what out our version of whatever the popular books, comic books are at the time to then being like, Hey, let's try this. And they become trendsetters. Yeah. And then, so they put out these horror books and all of a sudden they, like Dion said, then they become the trendsetters. Now they're the innovators. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, they put out one issue like Dion said, I think it was the Crypt of Terror, which later became retitled uh, Tales from the Crypt. And they noticed that the sales... Now, they say, like, sales overnight. I don't think you, they actually found out. Overnight. Yeah. Well, I mean, they might... They, buy, I, I think they actually don't get sales figures until, like, two months later. But I, I, you so. know what it could be? It could be a word on the street where the newsstands are selling out quickly. And then all of yeah. a sudden, the, if the newsstands are demanding more content, and then... So it could be that they're learning that way where it's like people are selling out left and right we have to print more yeah you know that could be all an indication that indicative that you know we're we're doing something that's good you know we're, you know so they put out crypt of terror like we said it becomes tales of the crypt and they put out another title called the vault of horror yeah the haunt of fear yeah crime suspense stories and as dm was kind of saying they went with the radio show model of having a host for a lot of these stories uh, but they were morality tales, basically good versus bad, good versus evil. And as Dion was kind of saying with the radio shows, kind of one of the most important aspects of them, it had like this twist, ironic, just desserts endings. And it became like the, their formula. And it worked. And they later went on and, and kind of started doing the same stuff in sci-fi. They created a magazine, a uh, comic book called Weird Science and Weird Fantasy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, honey. And, uh... They even did, I mean, war comics. They did Two-Fisted Tales. They did Frontline Combat. And those are straight books that were probably, uh, had the same sentiment of, like, uh, the horror of war and, you know, the depiction of the brutality of it, you know, with the same kind of, um, idea. Even, you know, and then the suspense stories, they were very film noirish. You know, and apparently Ed Gaines, uh, Ed Gaines, <laughs> Gaines. Bill Gaines would come in with kind of ideas and he'd run them by L. Feldstein and Feldstein would kind of start to work them into books. So in the beginning, it seems like it really was just like kind of the two of them starting this off. There's a funny story where uh, Bill Gaines comes in with an idea that he kind of borrowed from two different Ray Bradbury well, they, stories. Yeah, they'd have these things called pitch meetings, but in them they call them springboards and I guess Gaines would read as much as he could. That's all he would do to try to get, because you need to have, well, it's what, f a couple stories an issue and you're doing an issue every week or every month. month. Probably every month, and but you're you also doing seven titles. Yeah, but you're doing you know, several titles. You know, so uh, anything he could read, he would try to find out something, borrow it, and then he would come into the meeting with uh, Felstein and he would, you know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And then until one of these springboards they would call him would be something that Felstein's like, oh, yeah, that's good. I can use that. Yeah. And, Blake is alluding to that, you know, Ray, Ray, Ray Bradbury is a budding uh, sci-fi author at the time that's coming out with stuff, and uh, Gaines liberally borrows from two of his short stories. And, and to create one story. And so eventually Bra Ray Bradbury contacts them and says, hey... Great story. <laughs> I think you owe me some money. I, I, I didn't... I think in a polite way, he's like, I didn't... The check didn't come through, or he's, you know, he says the... Um, yeah. Yeah. And Bill Gaines says, like, well, we couldn't figure out how to contact you. Yeah, so sorry. And of course we'll write you a check. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, what do you think about us just publishing some of your stories? So then they create a deal yeah. where they get the rights to then just like directly publish a comic book 
adaptations of, of, of Ray Bradbury of a stories. number of Ray Bradbury they stories. They do a total of 26 Ray Bradbury stories, and he gets $25 per story as a commission Bradbury does. And I have a great... Uh, kind of little book that's the size of the novelizations for these movies we're covering tonight but it's called Tomorrow Midnight and it's I think all the sci-fi adaptations that they did of uh, black and white uh, in, in, comic, in comic book form but it's it's the size of a little like a novel paperback. yeah paperback book uh, and it's amazing and, and the, the one thing that they were when you read or watch interviews with them they're saying you're literally it's almost like one of the purest forms where unlike a movie your movie you have other people taking the stuff and kind of like you know putting it in the masher and coming out in the sausage or something else where this is they're actually taking verbatim Ray Bradbury's words and putting them into the panels yeah. and the only thing that they have to do which is the hard part is they have to delete to cut it to fit whatever their story is and then they're just directly illustrating so that's it's such a brilliant um, transition from writing to, to, yeah. to the art form, you know, it's it's so pure in a sense, you know. So uh, those are very awesome to have, you know, guys like Ray Bradbury, you know, uh, writing or getting their stuff translated into this kind of a format sure. for young kids in the '40s and '50s to read, yeah. you know. Uh, and then they have a huge amount of authors and the um, um, uh, illustrators. And the thing that I really liked, I th I think the angle that they uh, are pretty cool and innovating is that they look at everybody that starts working for them or the freelancers, the artists, and they see what people's strengths are. Yeah. And they kind of curtail them on yeah. the titles. And that's, I think, a brilliant use of how... So you they, know, they give them the stories that they think that their their artistic illustration strengths yeah. would, would you know, fit So if they, if they draw, you know, pretty girls that look like Lana Turner, who's famous at the time, or they do some great gore, you know, or they do good... You know, action sequences or combat, or they look really good when they draw landscapes or tra tanks, planes, whatever. They would, or some people would just do covers. You know, the the guy. I think it's um, you know, end up doing with with uh, uh, Johnny Craig, uh, Johnny Craig. But I was thinking, say Jack Kamen, who did all the creep show art in the creep show movie. You know, it's like these people would do like these. You know, they would do the covers and stuff. So yeah. it's just amazing that they end up getting, you know, huge amounts of people. Even the guy, Jack Orlick, who ended up writing these two um, novelizations for the movies tonight, he was an artist. But you had guys like Frank Vazetta, you know, who, who we love, Wally Wood, uh, a, a whole laundry list, Jack Davis of, of, of just these people. And Blake and I, about a year ago. Yeah, I think it was around Halloween time last year yeah we went to see this amazing exhibit which you'll know you could tell a little more about where was it it was at the it was at the society of illustrators yes it's uh i, I i'm hesitant to talk about it because in my mind it's it's, it's one it's, of the best kept secrets it's in the world one of the best kept secrets in new york for me yeah but and, and i love going there and i love going there because when i go there there's nobody there <laughs> but on the upper east side there's a house a house that nobody a, lives in. There's like a, a three-story house with a basement. Yeah. And at some point, Almost like 100 a years ago, yeah. it got turned into this like uh, society of illustrators, Yeah, which is um, you can join if you're an, an illustrator. And I guess it's almost, I don't think it's like a union, but it's like a, I don't know. It's a thing. Like a society or it's something. A, or some like kind a, of team or I don't you know. know. But yeah. Yeah. And you found out about it a number of years ago because you were always telling me, hey, I'm going to this exhibit on Spider Man art or I'm going on yeah. this. And you was like, you so should check it out. At because some point, they started you tell me. doing exhibits that featured comic book art. And yeah. I've been collecting comic book art, I don't know, for the last eight years or so. 
not as much as I used to because it's an expensive hobby. But uh, original I thought, comic book art. Yeah. So I, I found out about it because they did a big Spider-Man exhibit that highlighted, you know, that featured art from almost probably every Spider-Man artist, but heavily weighted in John Romita Sr. And John Romita Sr. is my favorite uh, Spider-Man artist and one of the artists that I try to collect. And so I went to that, and that's how I kind of discovered it. And so the house that I'm talking about uh, is basically a museum. And so they have uh, art on every floor, and on the top floor is still an exhibition room, but you can eat up there. And so I'd always kind of run it by Dion, like, we should go. Like, I think there's, as of right right now, I think there's a Batman exhibit going on, which is for, like, 80 years of Batman or whatever, uh, which is very cool. And I went to that a couple, like, a couple months ago. But a year ago, they did, they split it up as, like, part Avengers art. And, I mean, I guess they, they kind of wised up that comic book art was going to bring people in. Yeah. So there's an admission fee. Yeah. Um, and they do other things. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I, it's a really cool place. But last year we went and half the museum was dedicated to uh, Avengers art. Like, so original comic book art that was drawn for the Avengers. And then uh, the top floor or floors were dedicated to EC Comics art. Yeah. And so. a little bit of Mad. Yeah, a good, a good amount of mad, but majority of it was yeah. uh, the EC comic years. So Dion and I went there. We had a we had a date. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. Uh, <laughs> we went up and uh, we we explored and got to look at a bunch of the old. And EC. I think we put po- we put some pictures online. We from, might have posted we, we, a few pictures. You know, yeah. of Blake perusing the, yeah, the art. Not, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't occur to me to take pictures. Yeah. Luckily, Dion. <laughs> It does occur to Dion, but that's why you always see me doing something in the pictures. I just document everything. <laughs> Dion documents it. Because my idea is with museums, <laughs> since I have dyslexia, it's hard for me sometimes to read really quickly something in a museum and try to, t- to absorb it. So I'm always the guy that's like left behind. They're like, hurry up. You know, it takes me four hours when I'm in the library. Yeah. So my idea is like, I'll take a picture now of it and I'll look back later. And I never do. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... And then we're at an EC Comics art fucking exhibit. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's all original. What they were doing basically was they'd have like the big eight by ten or what's the what's the framing? I want to say of a, it's like uh, it's something by like fourteen, fourteen by ten, maybe inch. You know, that's what the the original, what the paper or the cardboard they're the original working pages on. that they the before that was colored. Yeah, you know, just the pencil, the, the artistry. Inked. They so they'd have that up on the wall, and then next to it they'd have maybe the inked. And then they'd have next to it the original, what it, the final product of it, colored what it looked like. So you'd have these different steps or these sketches. And then they highlighted it by artists. So they had over here Wally Wood. They had over here, um, you know, Jack Davis. So you had yeah. around the room. And then they're telling that story. A couple story. of Rosetta pieces. Yeah. You know, and they're explaining to you, like, you know, these these this guy draws girls good. This guy draws. So you're looking at, oh, yeah, look at. And then the mad, you know, this guy does really good caricatures. So they had, you know, the mad magazine stuff. And it was it was just amazing. I mean, just to see the artistry. I mean, there's some cover, such iconic covers. Like my favorite, one of my most favorite covers from the EC Comics is in, it's a picture of like a, a cement hi- or, or, or asphalt highway and there's zombie hands coming up out of the ground and in the background there's a, like a Cadillac coming that's skidding with yeah. the lights on seeing it and I thought 
all my life because I love cars and zombies. I thought that was such an iconic image, and they had the original there. Yeah, you know, and so it's just when you see stuff like that, you know, it's just. And I should probably be smart enough to tell people what artist did that, but I don't know. <laughs> I can maybe put it in later. Well, so this is off the cuff. People. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, we we can we only do a do lot so of research, but we can't. Know, we smudge some of it, but you know what? Like we, we like think, to say, we can't think ahead. Yeah, on everything. And then the problem is, is we don't have anybody. The th- we don't have like a producer, a third person listening to to help us edit on the fly. We've asked my father if he would do that <laughs> but we thought that would be supremely awkward to have him there you know mucking with our settings <laughs> with headphones on yeah yeah you said that's uh, not how you pronounce that name yeah it's not pam greer <laughs> it's pam greer what that so anyway um we, we went and saw this exhibit it was freaking awesome um so Mad goes on. Mad is, or I'm sorry, EC Comics goes on. EC Comics gets really, really, really big, and you know it's it's basically a bona fide hit. People they love add, it. They add more titles. They add shock suspense stories. Yeah. It's now they called preachies, which ha- tackles more social issues. Yeah, and that's another amazing thing. You look at the stuff that they're the, these preachies they're doing, which are uh, very p- social and political, like stuff you see Twilight Zone doing, or like a yeah. lot of the tackling like race. I mean, and and you take Twilight Zone where they're doing it with uh, under the guise of sci-fi, yeah. where a lot of these stories are basically You're like straight, straight up. up, like you know, we don't want the Jew moving into the neighborhood, <laughs> or or about lynching, or about you know, and it's like you know, you're black, and it's like stuff that people in the '50s were starting to face. You know, in a couple of years, you'll have the civil rights movement starting in the early to mid '50s. Yeah, so it's amazing that you have comic books. You know, selling I'm not the sure kids. How, how entertaining they were. Well, to I, kids, they're doing them in such a way where it's you know, it's 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 kind of a moralistic. You know, like the Jewish one. It's like I don't want the guy moving neighbor because he's a Jew or whatever. And then like something then, happens, they then, burn the house down, right, yeah. or something. And then at the end of it, like the, the, the big twist. Ending. Yeah, the mother is like, I didn't want to tell you, you were adopted. Yeah, and you were from Jewish. Parents. <laughs> you know, so they're so you're getting that twist ending at the end of these preachies. So they're all like you said, moralistic tales. And I think that's just amazing for kids if they're eating them up. But because EC is so darn popular, you start getting. Um, uh, copycats. You get other people doing the same thing. So you have uh, other crime, other suspense, other sci-fi, and other horror. And you know uh, the horror is getting you know horrific. They're trying to top each other. And then so because EC is having now to you know they've paved the market. Now they're having to to, to face competition. They up their gore level. So everybody starts getting a little more gory and horrific. Starts getting a little out of hand. You know, because it's they're trying to, you know, compete with competitors. Um, Plus, they branched out, as Dion was saying earlier, in 1952, they launched Mad Magazine. Yeah. Well, I guess it wasn't a magazine yet. It was yeah. just a comic. It's, it's a, sat- they, a satire thing. And then also, there, I don't know if James M. Kane, who did, wrote Double Indemnity and Postman Always Rings twice, but I think that they're either adapting stories of his or, you know, uh, or he, they're using him as an influence, you know. Yeah, so they start doing, like, noirish detective stories yeah. in addition to their horror stories. Which Max Allen Collins cites as some of the best examples of, like, comics doing film noir and that, of that style in the, in the 50s. Um, but that's the same with the copycats. You know, apparently a lot of them weren't quite as clever, so they still didn't sell as well as EC Comics. But uh, there's a figure... Because we love we love citing figures. Yes, that in 1953, nearly one quarter of all the comics produced were horror comics. Yeah, so it was very popular in the early 50s. Yeah, and then you get um, uh, I'd say what is it? I think it's in the late 40s. You have first um, 
uh, what's his face? Frederick Wortham, 40. our good old buddy. Good old buddy. Dr. Wortham. 48. Uh, 48. He publishes two uh, articles, one called Horror in the Nursery and the other one called The Psychopathology uh, of Comic Books. And he starts digging at saying about... You know, look at the shit that the kids are reading. This is this this isn't stuff that they should be seeing. He was gore, he you know. was a therapist or a doctor of some sort. I don't know if he was a psychiatrist or, but he was working with juvenile delinquents. Yeah, and so he was talking to a lot of, to these juvenile delinquents and then draw and then drawing conclusions. Yeah, that it was harming from his work and then writing, uh, you know. Pieces for the for the for the American Journal of, of Psychotherapy and stuff, and so he gets on this tangent of like he's working with these kids, and he like I said, he starts drawing conclusions of what causes juvenile delinquency. Yeah, and he, he's citing comic books as the major the the major concern, or this is the thing he wants to go after. He doesn't go after you know movies or music at the time or whatever else is going on. So most of the kids he talks to read comic books and this is th- and they're juvenile delinquents yeah. so ipso facto <laughs> exactly in conclusion <laughs> you know he doesn't look at the home life and you know because I mean and he doesn't realize he's not talking to non-juvenile delinquents who are also reading these who are also reading the comic books and seem to be perfectly fine yeah and they grow up to be people like John Carpenter George Romero R.L. Stein you know whoever Stephen the heck, King Stephen King you know all these people so he starts making a buzz in 48 so I think it is actually Bill Gaines' idea let's Let's imply a comic book code. He gets all the other publishers together from the competitors. He's, you know, it's like a big meeting of all the bosses, the crime bosses. And he's like, let's make ourselves a comics code, uh, which is going to be called the Association Comic Book Magazine Publishers. And he says, we'll censor ourselves before you know, it is imposed on us by a third party. But what ends up happening is it, it, it kind of is proven ineffective, uh, I think, right at the start. Uh, Gaines has problems with what they want to censor which is like you know they're trying to get rid of the go after his horror niche so he backs out right at the beginning and he doesn't become part of the the code and at the time I and this th- is an earlier version of what, what later let, be- yeah, what later st- becomes the comic yeah book code. and then because uh, you know he leaves in 1950 this this uh, as the from the uh, he gets an argument with the executive director over stuff uh, he's not following that code and then Everything starts going, you know, crazy again. And by '54, yeah. there's only only three publishers who are kind of still following the ACMP seals uh, on their comics, and they realize it's kind of meaningless that that this thing is just being put on there just as show. So we have Wortham is still kind of pissed about stuff, and he publishes in '54 the uh, now notorious Seduction of the Innocent, which is a huge, huge book that everyone reads. I mean, this is the time of what. Dr. Spock, right? Maybe Spock's in the 50s who's writing about childhood development or you have um, the other guys who are doing the sex, the sex books. Um, yeah. What's the guy? Kinsey? That, yes. Thank you, Kinsey. That, that, that uh, They did a great movie with Liam Neeson about, what was it? Walter Kinsey? Kinsey? But Kinsey's, you know, because talking about, you know, women don't even, some people aren't educated. Men and women, they don't, they're not told the birds and the bees and then when they get married, that's the first time they have to confront what to do in a situation because it was so like such an extreme point of view. So you, uh, maybe it's Albert Kinsey. So you have this huge in the fifties, everything is starting to go on people. It's the psychoanalysis. People are bringing psychology and everything. So Wortham writes this book, seduction of the innocent, which I guess a lot of mothers and fathers read and it becomes this kind of yeah. huge thing. Like, like you know, Batman look what, and Robin are gay. Yeah, Superman uh, is, is, is a, is a, is subversive or all this other thing. And you end up getting, um, 
people start burning their comic books. They start having like in towns, they, they you know these the a lot of like the, the, the church groups or whatever the, the you know the Boy Scouts or whatever uh, school kid PTA, you know they're they're getting the con- and you see these big comic book burnings that people are, are going through. So in '54 they start having congressional hearings. Uh, Idius uh, Keyhoffer, uh, a Democrat from Louisiana, he's a senator. He has these huge, huge. Um, Congressional hearings about like what about juvenile delinquency? Yeah, what's what going? Are we, what are we going to do with these you crazy know, juveniles? Yeah, and they have Wortham come in and Wortham starts showing, you know, Exhibit A. He's showing, you know, Batman bit, and Robin, yeah. Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson sleep in the same room. Yeah, they must so be ipso facto. <laughs> facto, they are homosexual. You know, or like look at the brutality of this beheaded woman's head on the, on the you know, so uh, they start pointing fingers at everybody and gains kind of gets pissed off by this Bill Gaines so he says he makes a big mistake yeah he's like I'm gonna go testify and it's one of these he things volunteers to testify yeah and you see that nowadays where people come out and, and you try can to find you can find footage of him sure. testifying yeah. online and he gives this really heated you know uh, uh, testimony about stuff and it ends up backfiring because it gives um, people now the, you know the, these it gives these, this anti-comic book movement yeah, a face yeah to, to someone to blame the, the evil publisher he becomes you know uh john lifgow from the santa claus the movie the evil toy baron you know so suddenly they have someone they can point at bill bill Gaines from ec comics he's the face of all this and he's the one causing all this so then they start asking him i think he's cross-examined so you probably have a, a board of senators or people representatives asking him questions and there's a notorious thing where they have one of his issues where it's the decapitated a woman's head being held with an axe and you could see it's very cleverly done when you can see her legs in the background her body her head is here and then right before the end of the bottom of the page you can't see the, the, the decapitated neck and you see the the axe in the other guy's hand so they ask Gaines they go you know do you find this in poor taste and then he replies no and they're like you don't find a decapitated woman's head on a children's comic book in poor taste and he's like no because if we had blood dripping from the neck yeah. that would be poor taste and everyone was like oh, oh, you know and then you see reporters running out of the room <laughs> to go make phone calls you know to, you know, to talk to their publishers Bill Gaines yeah, yeah. William Gaines yeah. Yeah. check it check it check it Roddy put it on today's article <laughs> you know, can I get tonight's edition you know so it goes completely wrong for him and um they end up uh, again the, the the fellow publishers come together and say listen we really need to freaking imply our own code because if we don't again we're gonna definitely have people come in and tell yeah, us what like to the do. government is going yeah. to censor us so they end up coming up with the comic book magazines association of america and its comic code authority which is something we saw until the late 80s were on com- you know that seal you know, yeah. until probably no, oh, maybe the mid nineties. You know, I don't, even I don't know. know when it was relaxed, but I think it was within our era they started to relax the, um, you know, that code. But it's also like some of the rules that they came up with seem like directly. Oh, they were do- they were trying to go after him. That like was specific. Yeah, to go after his because they they say that the new some of the new rules was no comic book title could use the words horror terror or weird and we have Gaines has tales from the crypt or vault of horror weird ta- you know so suddenly they're going after yeah, specific like- <laughs> titles that he has and he's like well, what the hell so he tries to he refuses to do a lot of this stuff and then he has to end his basically basically that cancel year. those he had to cancel Same those year. lines he ends up can't like the, they stopped producing horror comics yeah and he tries to do other comics 1954 
Yeah, they try to do. They try to lean to, into the suspense story comics, uh, MD comics, psychoanalysis comics, that kind of a and, thing. You know, probably still the sci-fi fantasy stuff yeah. is still probably okay. They're doing like titles like Impact, Psychoanalysis. So that's their new direction. But what happens is, since he doesn't have the code on these new comics newsstands refuse to put the comics on their newsstands because you have to have the code on the comic to have it on a newsstand. You have to put the code. You gotta <laughs> put the code in the thing. Put the jello on the button. comic. Now, Camille with the people today with the, with the picture pages and the pen going. <laughs> so, um, they end up kind of, you know, running out of what they can do. And there's a very important, one of the last things they do uh, they do a story in incredible science fiction in uh, 33 in 1956. They, they Number 33. Number 33. In February of 1956. They do a story called Judgment Day, which was actually a, a reprint of a pre-code uh, weird fantasy number 18 from 53 uh, called Eye for an Eye. So they needed a story, and I think it was part of the problem was the story got rejected. Originally, right? The story that they were going to put in the book. Oh, yeah. The original story that they got, which was an eye for an eye, and it was uh, about a mutant uprising against humans or something crazy that maybe you'd see, like, you know, um, Richard Matheson doing in a couple of years. That's rejected. So they, they grab need, Judgment Day. They need to fill it, so they pull a story from an older issue. Yeah, they Terminator 2. So, no, it's not. No relation <laughs> to Judgment Day. But they grab a, 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 in a, a story called Judgment Day, which is interesting because it's basically what we see... Uh, 10 or 12 years later in the episode of Star Trek with Frank Gorshin. Yeah. You know, where it's basically uh, this human comes down. Uh, well, we don't know it's human. Yeah. Right? Uh, oh, it's an, a- it's an astronaut, right? And some maybe- kind of, some astronaut in a space alpha, but yeah. I don't think we know that it's human in the beginning. But an astronaut comes down, finds this, you know, he's, he's, he's part of, the, he's a representative of the, of the Galactic Republic, and he goes to this planet, and the, the entire planet's inhabited by robots. Yeah. So he comes down and he's chatting very much like the day the Earth stood still. He's evaluating if they could maybe become part of the Galactic Republic. And he determines there that there's identical robots, which are orange and blue races, uh, but one has fewer pr- rights and privileges than the other. And the, and the astronaut's like, well, you guys are exactly the same. One face is black, one face is white. One fi- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, same as that Star Trek. Episode. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they start, there's the bigotry and all this kind of stuff. So, <laughs> Which, the, it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to start. I mean, I don't want to get on a Star Trek tangent, but it's funny when you apply the, you know, it's a statement on, like, it's ridiculous for you guys to not like each other because one, face, one half of your face is black and one half of your face is white. Uh, but it's the other side of the face. But also, like, their stance, if you look at it now in today's PC, n- new levels of PC-isms, like, the Enterprise's view of that, like, why would you guys not like each other? You're the same. Is racist. <laughs> oh, you mean because they're saying that they're, that they're, they're not... They're not being like... Like, you're not different. You're the same. Is a racist point of view by Captain Kirk. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, oh, I, yeah, because he's not. He's generalizing that the planet, but you're saying because everyone is an individual, and he's, he's generalizing... You guys look the same. Yeah, you're... You know, they, yeah. all, they all look the same to me. I, I see his broader point, but I, I, I see mean, what you're saying. I, I see yeah. the, the point of the story is that, like... Yeah. 
that these looks. people could, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that they should yeah. not. So then, does that apply into this story? That this story could be inherently racist. I don't know as well? about that, but you know, because but it's but the, 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 the Star robots. <laughs> but in the Star Trek episode, <laughs> episode for sure, it's like it's just the more subtle version of racism. Yeah. Than what's going on with Frank Gorshin and whoever that other guy is. So at the end of it, um, what ends up happening is the the the. The astronaut decides that hey, you guys, until you guys can figure your shit out, you yeah. can't, you can't be part of the galactic agency. He goes back up, and like I said, this is something you see in the day the Earth sits still, maybe even Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And at the end of it, the, he's making his report. He takes his helmet off, and it's an African American man, or he's not—they're not called that. He's a black man back then. Yeah. And uh, he's got beads of sweat going down his face because he's in the—he's packed into that helmet. Yeah. So this but causes a huge uproar. We have to get—we have to start transitioning here to the other stuff. But this causes a huge uproar, right? Yeah, whoever is in the comic book code, Judge, what's his face? Judge Judy. It's like you can't. You, the story's fine. Judge Murphy says story's fine, but you can't have him be a black man. And yeah, and they're like, why? He's, they're like, that's the whole point of the story. Is the, is the reveal? Is the twist? It's a twist, you know. And Bill uh, Gates is like, it's bullshit. I'm gonna call a press conference. I'm gonna point out the racism in the comic book code. Yeah, and it, and, and he's saying this is you know, there's there, you have no grounds, no basis to do this like that. So. Uh, when he's threatening, he's saying "f you." He's threatening to call a press conference and make a hoopla about why you won't let us do this. And by the way, we're saying this is the last issue they're publishing. Well, this I is, don't know if it was going to. Oh, be. Okay, I thought this was since there. I, I think, it was winding down. I think this, this is because might, of this. I think it might have been why it becomes the last issue. So Murphy relents. He says, "Listen, you can publish it, but we just want you to take the beads of sweat off his face." You know? The idea was that his he's sweaty because he's in the helmet, but the idea is like vi- visually you can see the reflection of the stars because he's in his spaceship in the glistening sweat yeah so in this face you could see the stars yeah reflecting and uh, Gaines replies by, by saying fuck you and then he hung up the phone and they ran the story in its original form but that ends up being the last comic EC puts out and I think they closed their doors officially on that end but the only title they keep is Mad Magazine and the interesting thing about this is other comics at the time are still putting horror stuff out. But from what I hear is how they get around the code is they keep their stories inside black and white. And because and that's what Mad Magazine does. Mad is black and white inside too. Yeah. So there's some sort of like you can skirt the rules because you're technically not a comic book. Because Marvel and DC, their stuff's color inside. Yeah. And also Mad becomes a magazine. Yeah. And that's not a comic. Like a full magazine as opposed to a comic book. So they don't have to adhere to the comic code. So my first point is that you then have a budding uh, into the 60s and 70s, huge market of war comics, which I think is dried up now. War comics, uh, you have... uh, horror comics you know i remember in the 70s i had old comics of some great titles that were like these stories that were still coming out in the 70s well yeah Dracula, at some Marvel. point in the 60s somebody starts to revive the idea of horror comics you get creepy and eerie yeah that's what I, that's and my that's point, when yeah. we start to see the next level yeah. of artists that become known for horror guys like bernie wrightson and uh and mike plue yeah and those guys you know who grew up on the EC comics but you know they don't have to apply to this code so there's some great issues uh, going on and I say I think it dries up I know Garth Innes put out some war stories which are phenomenal in the past 10 years or so a collection of World War 2 stories but for the most part I don't see GI combat anymore or the eerie or the weird tales like you know a lot of those titles I remember particularly having 
particular issues where they were all ghost stories or they're like you know this very scary like is it true like one of the things is like you know all the true ghost stories and all that kind of thing so that happens but mad survives and then mad comes through all the years is the only thing that survives from the EC Comics legacy into our youth where we had Mad Magazine. And yeah. I, we didn't, who didn't know that then Bill turns out, grow, you know, gets older, you know, gains a little more weight, gets a big beard, gets some long white hair and glasses, and that's the guy you used to see in the back, the publisher, the editor of Mad Magazine. So, uh, you know, it's amazing that, that it has that story that connects to us as kids. Yeah. Because, you know, we're, and we're still kind of, uh, you know, collect, uh, connected to it vicariously through Mad. And I th- sadly, as of this recording, 2019, I think it was within this year, Mad stopped uh, you, you stopped being published where you can get it on the store shelves. I think now it's only by subscription you can get it through the mail, Mad Magazine, because the sales are just so down. Yeah. And I think the same thing happened to Cracked or if there's any other magazines. I know they may have a big online presence, you know, but... Every publication and newspaper is hurting in this day and age. You know, everybody likes digital forms. Yeah. So it's sad. So Matt is still available to my knowledge of this recording, but you just can't go get it, you know, uh, on, in a shop or at a magazine store. So, so the, that's EC. So the last EC comics, are, you know, the last one is is incredible science fiction. That ends at 56. And then 10 years later, Ballantine Books starts to reprint yeah. uh, some of the tales from the crypt and Vault of Horror stories in a black and white as black and white paperbacks, which I guess is kind of what you're talking, you know, might be what you have. Yeah, of the Ray Bradbury uh, Tomorrow Midnight. And so they start publishing that stuff in 64 and 66. So like 10 years, 10, 10 years book pass. Form. And so then they start reprinting them in black and white in book form. Uh, and then in 71, Nostalgia Press puts out the EC uh, Horror Library, which contains 23 stories. Yeah. And then... Uh, and then 72 and 73 is when these films that we're talking about come out. But also 71 through 77, Russ Cochran starts to... Yeah, God bless Russ Cochran. Yeah, he kind of revitalizes uh, EC by reprinting everything, first in the EC portfolios from uh, from 71 to 77. And then from 78 all the way to 1996, they start to put out the complete EC library, which is, I think, where Dion and I, for the most part, at least I, speaking for myself, I think that's where... I started to see these stories for the first time. Yeah. Is th- these original Russ Cochran uh, publications. Yeah, he puts out, he's the head of this EC library and he puts these out. And so I don't know. reprint them. Yeah. And make them available it, again. In their original form, you know, remastered and re, not remastered, just <laughs> restored. Remastered. Yeah, and all this, all the surround sound, <laughs> that stereophonic sound you remember, that two, two and four track sound. Um, but I don't know what year it is, but, th- but at some point, that he's putting these beautiful hardcover bound sets out and they got pretty pricey which was shitty because they were only a limited run so you could find them on eBay but it's just hard because they're you know there are many books to a set so like the crime and suspense may be only one book because that's you can fill it all but it, you see this nowadays with like Marvel does a lot of this where yeah. you have like you know it'll be theirs is like a, a very thick uh, paperback almost a book and it's like the run of the first I don't know 100 Punisher run you know or Amazing Spider, or the Secret Wars, or whatever. Sure, you know, but but what Russ is doing here, Russ is doing a nice hardcover edition, beautiful in a compendium, like you know, you put it into a bigger box set, like a sleeve. Yeah, yeah and it'd be that, and that's nice cardboard, a hard cardboard box that you can slide them into, and he puts the entire EC line out. 
Uh, and you and I have a lot of those. And that's where you're able to see in beautiful color of black and white some of the original, all, all the original artwork. And, you know, it's, it, it's really maybe because of him that that stuff survives. Yeah. Um, but in conjunction with these reprintings is that they start to become popular again. Yeah. In reprint. Especially ten, in the ten, 60s and 70s. Ten yeah. years later. And so that's when... Uh, now getting <laughs> to Amicus, to, to where we where we started, Amicus Films comes about. Milton Sabotsky, yeah, Sabot Milton Sabotsky, who was an American. Yeah, he remembered them fondly. He grew up with them, and so he goes to his partner, who created who he created Max Am Rosenberg Amicus Picks Productions with at Max J Rosenberg. Yeah, and says, "Hey, like I remember these when I was a kid." Here's some of them. You know, here's some of these reprints. He's yeah. probably either the handed Valentine. them. Uh, either the either the the uh, Valentine or or that first maybe that first run of the the EC portfolios that Russ Cochran puts. But he hands it to Rosenberg and says, "We should get the rights to these. Yeah, because these should, are these are mint, and we should do you know? this, we should do a movie. Yeah, uh, and that turns into and something. That's it. <laughs> yeah, good night. You see, you uh, and that turns out being oh you know one last thing before we completely leave the comics I forgot we should have said this when we were talking about Ray Bradbury but it w it's interesting that uh, when Ray Bradbury was handing them stories there's also stuff he was giving them that uh, ended up not working at first he had a story called the Black Ferris that he had it was a screenplay idea that he pitched because he saw Gene Kelly doing invitation to a dance and he wrote this short story the black ferris into a screenplay called dark carnival and he pitched it to gene kelly gene kelly loved it and gene kelly's like i want to take this to france and try to get some money money together financing we're going to make this and then gene kelly came back and was like i can't nobody wants to you know put money in this i'm so sorry and the story ends up running in comic book form i think in uh one of the issues of ec comics and then later uh it takes another i don't know 20 years or whoever and um uh, Bradbury won't let this die. He's rejiggering it, rejiggering it, and it ends up becoming something wicked. This way comes the Disney movie with Jason Robarts, which you know you and I love the, that that yeah. area of Watcher in the Woods and the Black Hole of Disney live action. So uh, it's interesting the stuff that he was putting in there. Um, but getting back to this, so Amicus Pictures, which we already set the table with them, and I think it's in conjunction here with uh, AIP. They do a kind of uh, a mutual financing to do this first movie, Tales from the Crick from 72. AIP is the stuff. I think that was putting the Vincent Price Poe stuff out at the time. Isn't it AIP? Who was doing like with Roger Corman and stuff like that. You know, doing the satiristic yeah. uh, and also straight Poe horror mm -hmm. that um, Price most fam famously was doing in the, in the 60s. Um, so they come together and they do this movie from 1972 called Tales from the Crypt. And um, which, uh, interestingly, uh, in research, I never like uh, Fre Freddie Francis has become one of my favorite guys in researching. This, this is the director for this. <laughs> he directed um, Freddie Francis directed Tales from the Crypt, and uh, he also directed a lot of Hammer and Amicus horror movies, uh, including The Evil of Frankenstein, Hysteria. Dracula has risen from the grave. Nice. Trog, nice. Uh, the creeping flesh. He he was a horror movie director in England for Amicus and and uh, and Hammer, but he was also a cinematographer, and he won the Academy Award, I believe, for Sons and Lovers in 1960 and Glory 
1989 as a cinematographer, as a cinematographer. But he also was a, the cinematographer for Dune, the wow. David Lynch movie, Cape Fear, the Scorsese the movie remake, yeah, and uh, School Ties. Holy shit! So uh, multi-talented, and I'm uh, sure we'll do one of those as you just said <laughs> at some point. Uh, it, it'll be a big cast for us to try to cover Dune. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean that that's that's pretty impressive. Um, so I, a fascinating guy. I'm going to definitely look into more of the Freddie Francis stuff. But so we have Tales from the Crypt, 1972, uh, the first one. Uh, they 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 take um, five stories directly from the pages of EC Comics, yep. uh, which were written by, of course, William Gaines, Al Feldstein, and also Johnny Craig, who was an artist, but I believe would also write the stories he was he was uh drawing and uh some like i said some of these for me have become almost you know of legend yeah like yeah. you know whether you ha- saw the movie or you know the stories i feel like you've if as a horror fan you've been told these some of these stories yeah um movie starts where uh uh, a lot of times in England, you have these very old manor houses, abbeys, mansions, and below them they have these catacombs. You know, um, I visited one outside of Leeds, Temple Newsom. They have these amazing underground uh, catacombs that were the where a lot of the um, uh, Knights of the Round Table and all that kind of stuff took place. And and so these these uh, uh, amazing. Uh, structures have below these 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 th- things, which I think as a kid I never really put together. And th- our characters are going on a tour with a tour guide to go and have a look at these catacombs. And uh, once they start going, uh, suddenly they get lost from the tour, and they go into the because Dame Joan Collins drops her brooch, and when they pick it up and put it back on, they realize they've the the tour guide who said you know. Stay close because this shit's dangerous and bad things could happen. But they leave, they lose the tour, and they, they go down the wrong alley into this room, and they're like, what the hell? And then, then when they turn, it, they try to leave, the door shuts, and they turn back, and suddenly there's a guy sitting there who is um, Sir Richard, um, uh, Sir Ralph Richardson. And who at, has appeared on, on the podcast before. <laughs> and Greystoke, yes. the legend of Tarzan, legend of the... Edgar Rice Burroughs, yes, uh, <clears throat> um, another another great longest title, book. whatever <laughs> that, whatever the title of that movie is, is the longest title so far on the show. So I far, um, and he appears. And as a kid, I used to think him being corny and cheesy. His delivery, because you know, I'm I'm used to the to the hamming up of the Crypt Keeper. When I watch this now, the great John Cassier, yes, uh, as the as the voice of the Crypt Keeper. Now, when I watch Ralph Richardson. I, I like the straight delivery because it's kind of first you la- you laugh at the uncomfortability of it. Yeah. But then as this goes on, they do you know when in the novelization, uh, it's a little different. They talk about how his eyes are just black and you know it's like a lot about how his eyes are just very scary, it's like a doll's eyes. <laughs> yeah. But you they do some interesting things with they try to get the light. You know, a couple points they put like a they put a little like eye light going so you get the reflections in his eye you know what i mean so i really enjoyed this uh viewing his performance because of the uncomfortability where he says like remember he's like and he repeats like three times a line to the guy and you said 
and you know, I forget what it was, the, the, the line verbatim, but it's, it's uncomfortable, and I think he does a really good job. So you have him being the pseudo crypt keeper, quote unquote, where he's got a monk's outfit on with the, with the hood up, yeah. and he has them all sit down, and they don't know why they're there. They're kind of very like, this is weird, we were on a tour. And then like, you know, and then it kind of just jumps right in. Why are you here? And we go to first Dame Joan Collins. In reading the novelization by Jack Orlick, who we said was also a writer and artist for EC, who also... We're going to go back to the Superman 2 episode. Jack Orlick's brother-in-law is Joe Simon, who you said you were worried about naming by accident when we were talking about Siegel and Schuster. Yeah. But Joe Simon is the is the partner with Stan Lee. Who, uh, Jack Kirby's partner. Jack Kirby's partner. Who created Captain America. Yeah. So you think about that's his bro- that's Joe Jack Orlick's brother-in-law. So Jack Orlick, which is awesome, he was also writing regular stories and novels, and he writes the novelizations for both Vault of Horror and and Tales from the Crypt. And I got to tell you, they were so darn interesting. It's almost like when you read them first and you watch the movie, it's like you're only watching the cliff notes. Yeah. Because there's so much more in the book, and since it's done by this guy, it's not somebody. And I'm not to say with all the novelizations we read, I think the majority of them do a fabulous job. Um, I think maybe RoboCop 2 is the only one that kind of let me down. Yeah. All the other ones are very rather involved from what we read. He just fills it out so brilliantly and really sets a mood where the pacing was so quick in the movie because I used to, you know, I was fresh off reading the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, at the beginning of it, uh, we get the first story. Dame Joan Collins, where uh, of course was on Dynasty oh, when Jesus. we were kids, yeah. but uh, is in perhaps one of the best, certainly one of the most memorable and most legendary episodes of Star Trek: City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, and her sister is Judy Collins, who is the very, very famous writer. Who um, I last year, I'm sorry, not Judy Collins, Jackie Collins, and last year I uh, covered the royal wedding. And it was in um, Windsor, and they had us in Slough, which is actually where the British office is set. So it would take about a 15-minute journey. you get into the bus, and they would take you to Windsor. And when we would go through the towns, every day we'd pass her house. Every, the bus driver would be like, that's Jackie Collins' house. And we'd all look out the window. Oh, well, it's Jackie Collins' house. And I met her at my day job. She came and um, brought, because she was a writer writing books. But Joan is a legend, Dame Joan Collins, like you said. I mean, she's known coast to coast like butter on toast. And she's one of the biggest names they have in here. You know, it's her, Peter Cushing, and uh, Ralph Richardson are kind of helming this production. And her story, she's only got about like what four or five lines, maybe in the whole thing. Yeah, you know. And it's so sad because in the book, it's Christmas Eve, right? It's setting up. It's Christmas time. Trees up. Kids going to bed. Santa Claus is coming. It's snowing outside. Uh, the f- husband is so happy. I mean, uh, you know, we have to try to hurry this up to get through these ten stories. <laughs> but the husband is like, I've, and they say that kind of in the movie. I got the bi- best wife in the world. I'm getting her a present. And he's talking about his life can't be any better. Food was delicious. He's got a cognac. He's laying back. The kid's be- wife putting the kid to bed. I'm putting my feet up. Christmas music's on. It's fucking Christmas. Why can life be any better? And then suddenly he picks the paper up and he gets a fucking, you know, back of the head. He gets the freaking... Um, uh, poker, the fire stick poker. Yeah. And uh, he's killed, falls to the ground, and it's Joan Collins killing him, his, his, his wife. And 
the story is, I think it's that she wants the, the insurance money, I think, right? Yeah, I think it's an insurance thing. Yeah. And of course, at the same time... Yeah, you hear on the radio <laughs> that, that, that there's a report of a, of a, of a the, the psychiatric hospital around the block that uh, there's been escape, some, a, a convict escaped, and he's appropriated a Santa Claus outfit and a Santa Claus bag. And it's funny because right after they say, well, well in the book they say, we'll update you after every, every report. Um, Twas the night before Christmas starts, read by James Mason. So she's, yeah, exactly. She's like, Twas, Twas the night <laughs> before Christmas. By Sir Clement Moore. And Twas the night all through, through the house. house. Not, a, not even a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> the stocking so starts turning to Jesse Jackson. That's wrong with Claire. Hoping that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Um, so she remarks like, oh, I love his voice and how amazing he sounds. So she starts, and it's funny, she's trying to clean the body up and then she realizes, shit, he's bleeding on the carpet and it's like, she's like, I never knew, uh, I, from what I heard, you know, you, you weren't supposed to bleed after you die. It's like that kind of that stupid yeah. stuff or lividity starts setting in. She's like, oh my God, he's looks so different so quickly. He's gray. I didn't know that would happen. So she's trying to clean up the poker stick and she's got this great plan. She opens up the the, the present from him and it's it's the brooch that she's wearing she put you know she's like ah you know he's like i love you too and she's like whatever you idiot so you really set up that like she's kind of a bitch for doing this but in the, <laughs> you, you know, think no i mean but <laughs> it's important because all these stories for the most part are all they set up how yeah. bad the person's doing so they get their comeuppance at the end and there's one of them which we could talk about which it's kind of uh, you know, on the on the level if it's true or not. But in the book, they're saying she's doing this for the daughter. She wants a better life for the daughter, or whatever. Kids upstairs, kids like mommy. You know, uh, I, I want to stay up for Santa. And in the book, she says, "Listen, you know, you got to go to bed. I'm telling you, Santa ain't gonna come if you don't go fucking to bed. You know, you, he's gonna skip the house." And she m- makes a point, puts the kid to bed, and she starts cleaning everything up with the with the radio on the background. And then she suddenly starts hearing at the door. She starts hearing knocking all that, and then you know, England for some reason, even to this day, they don't lock their doors because it's like a village. Why do we need to? There's no crime. So she runs quickly, locks the doors on all the windows. She shuts the blinds, and she looks outside and she sees it's the fucking maniac in the Santa outfit. This is a story for people who, if this rings a bell, this was I think the pilot or the second episode. I for, think this was the pilot. For if the I'm not mistaken, yeah. yeah, from the Tales from the Crypt TV show, played by um, what's her face, the mother in the psychiatrist from Lethal Weapon. Yeah, and the mother from uh, Monster Squad and yep. Goonies. Yep, and then the the bad guy is what's his face, Doctor Giggles. Yeah, who also is so the bad guy in Dark Man and the victim in Dark Knight is a scarecrow. Yeah, which that's is right. his first role. You know, uh, he's the he's this madman, and he looks very more madman than this guy. But this guy in I this British one is so scary. scary. Which one? The, the, the TV show. Yeah, he's freaky looking. I remember they gave him I even teeth. just had like a magazine that had a picture of him. Yeah, in he it, and I was like, that was so scary. And do they do a movie version? This is like, is there any other Silent Night, Deadly Night, or any of these? I felt like growing up, I always thought this was there was another since this is all part of our lore. Yeah, um, I don't know. So she's got him at the door, and she's trying to figure out what to do. I was thinking in this situation, why doesn't she just try to figure a story out saying that this guy did this? Maybe if she puts him by the front door and puts him on his back, she could say he opened the door and he hit him. You know, That's a good point. But anyway, so she, she, she tosses him down the stairs. She's trying to make it look like an accident. She gets it all ready. She's, trying to, she's able to get the, the stain out of the fur carpet, the, the, the fur rug. About to leave, and she, she looks upstairs, and she sees the kid's doors open. She runs up. The kid's gone. She starts screaming for the kid. She runs down, and the end of the story is <laughs> that the kid has opened the door, and she's like, "Look, I let Santa in." Yeah, and you know, and then in this story, he he in the in the Tales from the Crypt show, he she scream. I think 
they send it to what maybe gains gains and gains like she needs to scream and scream and scream so they end it with her screaming and screaming on the staircase where in this one it's a little more freaky where he runs her down in the in the living room and i think it's maybe you see the point of view through the through the fireplace maybe maybe so yeah. maybe you see the fire and you see him strangling her the old strangling through the back <laughs> the back strangle <laughs> not the front strangle she's, he's going after the back uh, for, all, for all of you that want to keep uh, uh, follow along at home <laughs> the story is called and all through the house and it was featured in the vault of horror number 35 awesome from February March issue of 1954 so she's killed and then you know it's it's up in the air really what happens to the kid and that's kind of freaky you don't know what's going to happen there with, with the child um, and then it suddenly cuts back again vault keeper and, he, and then she's kind of like in a fog and in, in the book it's it's every time they're done with the story they kind of go into like a fog and trance like they're thinking about it yeah, yeah next person is this guy and and all this is under the guise of that like the, the vault keeper crypt keeper is uh like warning them what could be and if this is if they don't change their ways yeah this is important because i feel like nowadays you can see this twist from miles away or it's yeah. maybe people would even say this is not melodramatic, but almost cliche or campy. Yeah. But I feel like they're kind of working off the uh, Charles Dickens view of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, yeah. uh, Christmas Carol, where those ghosts, that's, you know, everyone forgets that. That's a fucking ghost story. These ghosts visit Ebenezer to warn him about changing his ways. So I feel like here, that's what they're trying to do, too. They're trying to give the guys that he's like, this could happen if you don't, you know, in a, in a, in a possible future, if you don't, you know, straighten your shit out yeah so the next story is um, yeah i don't know i mean obviously we want to talk about all the stories but i don't i don't know if it's if we have the time if it's conducive time-wise to sit there and like talk about each one and all the uh, like you know describe what happens yeah. in each the story maybe we should just give like a gist okay and then maybe the twist ending and spoil it for everybody sure <laughs> Next story is this guy's leaving uh, with his wife. He, he's got to go do an overnight. He's going to drive someplace, and he tells his wife he's done this many times, and he tells his wife he's got to go and do because he's going to get there in the morning. He kisses his kids to, to bed. In the book, he talks about he's, he's done this many times, packing his bag. He's very scared to go. Kisses his wife, leaves, and you find out he's leaving his family, yeah. and this happens quite a bit, I guess. And he goes over his girlfriend's house, and his girlfriend's got moved the furniture out already, the apartment. You know, and they're he's like, okay, basically going to run away. Yeah, he's like, she's, you know, I, I, she's like, I've given my life in the book. He's like, I've given ten or twelve good years to this marriage. What do they want from me? I got to think about myself. Judy, whoever the wife, she could take care of the kids. She's good. The kids can fend for themselves. I got to think about me. <laughs> and this is something you'd see. A lot of people, I guess, tragically have these situations where the dad or mom is going for a pack of cigarettes and never come back again. Yeah. So he goes and grabs the girlfriend. Girlfriend's all ready to go. They're very uncomfortable to get into their car. They're driving away. He's talking about how uncomfortable it is. And she's like, you know, you look tired. You've had a stressful day with everything. Let's You've switch. had a stressful day. You've had a stressful fucking day. But I mean, drive. So she's not Irish, so if that's even an Irish accent. They flip, they flip things. He passes right out. And then he has this horrible dream and wakes up screaming. And she's like, you all right? And he's like, where am I? He's like, oh, God, it was just a dream. And she's still looking at him, and a car crosses the center line. He sees it before her. He tries to wrestle the wheel from her. The car goes off the road. And he wakes up. Big car crash. He wakes up. He's all messed up. He's trying to find her. Gets up, and it's all first person. And he's, yeah. you know, and it's cool. In the book, he he goes out in the road first, and a car skids. He stops a car in a car. The guy screams. Then he finds the bum. The bum sees him, 
and he's 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 he doesn't know what's going on. It's very hard to walk. He can't find Susan. She's been he thinks she's been ejected from the car. And his idea is like I'll just walk. I'll, I'll if I can't find anybody, I'll walk back to civilization. So he walks however long it takes, and he goes back to his house, and he knocks on his front door. Um, wife answers. Wife starts screaming and yelling. Slams the door, and he's like he doesn't understand what's going on. He looks into the to the wind the bay window, and he sees a new guy in the house. And the new guy's in the movie. She's shaking her. Like, what's wrong? What's what happened? What happened here? You know, yeah, exactly. yourself yeah, together, Jesus, straighten it up. Calm down. I had to stop him from screaming. And then he realizes when he looks at the the letter plate, it's a different name on the on the. the it's not his name anymore, like Maitland or whatever. He's like, what the? So he stumbles to the apartment of the woman, goes upstairs. It's the same name. Opens the door. The apartment's furnished again. She answers the door, but he quickly realizes she's blind, and she's freaked out like she recognizes the voice. Yeah. And then he's like, she's like, you've been dead for two years, and I've been blinded, and I had to move back in or whatever. And then he looks down, I think, at the, he looks in a mirror, looks down at the coffee table, and he sees that he's a zombie. Yeah, yeah. And then in the book, he wakes up from it again, and he's in the car, and that's the dream he's had. Yeah, well, now that's in the movie, too. Yeah, and then he... The car crash happens again in the book, and then the second time, he he goes through half of it, and he realizes going through half of it that this is really happening, and this is it. And then it becomes this in the book. It's you know for into cyclical. Yeah, it's forever. And then that's the that's the second story. That's and, reflection of death from Tales from the Crypt number twenty three from the May yeah. April May issue of nineteen fifty one. And uh, you know, to me, it's the any comments on these stories. I mean, that's another great one. The twist that he's dead, so he's been laying out there for I guess a couple years. Yeah, I mean, I you feel know? like the first ones are good, but they're like I feel like they're like the warm up ones. Yeah, I feel like. The well, ne- I think the Santa Claus is so iconic. It's the, iconic, but you know, like I, I, for me, like emotionally speaking. Oh, okay. The next like like the, poetic justice which is the next one with peter cushing like yeah. that's my favorite one of the whole yeah and it's also like what i remember when i revisited this movie didn't realize i was revisiting it but when i watched it you know 10 15 years ago whatever um that's what hit your gut <laughs> but it was also like his the the zombie peter cushing oh my god was like oh like that's from this yeah that's the cover you like see he's that. one of my favorite zombies like yeah. Dion and I will have conversations of like, what's your favorite zombie? Yeah, what's your the look <laughs> or you know whatever, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. topic we're on, and I'll be like, I just think the fucking zombie, like I've always said, like the zombie that actually wrestles the shark and zo- and Fulci's zombie. Yeah, like I just think it looks awesome. But this is another one that I would put as like yeah. one of my favorite zombies. And it's it's like the it's like the East Coast West Coast zombies where it's like you have the Romero zombies. Romero also cites. EC Comics being a big impact on him doing Night of the Living Dead and the twist at the end. But you look at, he pioneers zombies into the 70s, but on the other side of the pond, you have these movies doing zombies as well as the Italian Fulci zombies, yeah. which are clearly different from our zombies. Yeah. You know, they're, the Fulci zombies look like they're centuries old. They're always in the same kind of outfits, and they're always dry and gray. And Yeah, well, some of them you know, are like Spanish conquistadors. Yeah, you exactly. Know, so. or, or in the uh, other movie where it's uh, from beyond, where they're coming up from, you know, not yeah. from is it from beyond? Well, from in they, Louis, there's Louisiana. zombies in all those. Louisiana is 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 uh, the beyond. The beyond, not from beyond. Yeah. So this Cushing story, where it's uh, he was first first given the script to play another guy in a later story, and he says, "No, I like this." And sadly, Peter Cushing's wife had just died at the time, so he was hugely depressed. And and they said to him, like, you know, you should just play yourself in this. And at first, this character wasn't going to have any lines. And instead, um, they gave him some lines, and then Cushing kind of figured out maybe he'd give the lines to his the photo of his dead wife. But it's about this real poor guy who is just 
uh, he, you know, he, he, he's a uh, living off the, you know, council housing or whatever, and he's getting money from the government, or, you know, I mean, you know, he's living on a pensioner, and he's, and he's refurbishes, like, uh, toys for the neighborhood kids, and he saves up his money and gets candy when he can, pension pennies, gives them to the kids, and he's, he's feeding all the homeless dogs that he's are in the neighborhood. He's just a nice old guy yeah. in this town, and I get the sense that, like, he's probably lived in this house forever. Yeah. And then, with his wife. And, and then, like, the rest of the neighborhood got very upper class. Or they moved in. Yeah. Yeah, they, exactly. They moved in, and they've been trying to buy him out. Yeah. So that they can, like, tear down his house and put up another mansion yeah. or whatever. And particularly, the people across the street are just irritated by you know he's not doing anything wrong but it's just they don't like the the humdrum the, over his house the, yeah the aesthetic it of it the dogs yeah that the kids are always there making a nuisance so they want to they want to they start messing with them and try to get out and the first thing they do which again i keep citing novelization it's like i was on the train and i almost welled up crying is when they next door to peter cushing's house is this guy who has these really prized rose bushes that he's spent years growing so at night the other guy who doesn't like Peter Cushing goes over and destroys him and makes it look like Peter Cushing's dogs did it. Yeah. So the next day, the guy who's Rosebush is like, "This is fucking great. I it spent me years to make. I want you know. I'm gonna make a complaint with the, with the constable." So the next day, the, the the police, the constables go over to Peter Cushing's house and he doesn't have a license for any of these dogs. And it's so fucking heartbreaking in the book where they take these dogs away and these dogs don't know because they're so trusting of peter cushing yeah because they he feeds them that they first are like okay you know they're all like happy then they go with them and then they drive away you know and the dogs or they when they get into the, the pen they start crying because they realize what's going on and then when the the truck jerks to start they all fall over because they're in you know yeah, and then yeah. peter cushing doesn't know what to say in the book so it's just and then they just drive when you know they're gonna put them all down yeah yeah <laughs> you know so i was crying i'm almost crying now I know. so that's the first blow and then the second blow is they have what a, they have all the the mo- mothers over and they have like a like a uh for tea or whatever and they have like a sociable luncheon with like tea and biscuits or you know finger sandwiches and they start saying like why are your kids hanging out with peter kush so they start saying like you know why is he always with children i don't think that's a good thing you know so the next step is all the parents tell the kids stay away from that guy he's a weirdo why is he always giving you toys and they're like but these toys are amazing you know he's giving us some great stuff and so then when he comes out the next day the kids are running away and he used to always say he lives for his animals he lives for the kids laughter because yeah. he has nothing else to, you know, now he can't even have the kids laughter. And he's like, oh. And then next day, dog, another one dog comes home, the dog that was out, and he has this one dog. He's like, I'm so glad you're still here. And then on the back side of it, he's one of these spiritualists who, um, you know, tries to use uh, Ouija, board. Ouija boards and Ouija. stuff. Ouija. So he's trying to contact his wife at night, and he accidentally makes it through to her, I guess. And she spells out danger, and he's like, what's going on? You know, and the, the candle's like, you know, going... Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Then the next thing it's Valentine's Day. This in the book, it's this starts out right around Christmas. So it this takes a while. So when Valentine's Day comes, the last draws, the people across the street that don't like them send them a fuckload of Valentine's Day cards with these really terrible rhymes, right? Yeah. You know, like why don't you go die? The you know, the the, the neighborhood was grand till you came, why don't you go and ba ba bam, you know. So he's so like dejected at this point, he hangs himself. 
Yeah. And they don't know because they hear the dog barking for like a week and they're like, well, you know, we haven't seen Peter Cushing out in front of his house. And I think it's such a great performance by Peter Cushing, too. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons sounds, why I love this. I like I love this yeah, story. He not looks just, like not a, just the zombie, but Peter Cushing's so fucking yeah, good in this. He doesn't sound like uh, I don't know if they gave him fake teeth, but he doesn't sound like his regular proper self. He kind of sounds more like an older, you know, not Cockney, but like an older guy who's living, you know, off, you know, his his government, um, you know, whatever it is, government cheese. Yeah, you know, and he's and he kind of has a, a disheveled look. So when they go in his house, they're like, "Wow, it's so clean." We thought it would have yeah. been a pigsty, and they find him he hung himself so i don't know if they feel bad at this point but they pay for the funeral and everyone's like oh it's so sad it's happened da, 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 da. and then a year goes by exactly to the day and the guy's in his house and he's looking for something to write and he opens his his car remember he sees the the, the valentine's day cards or whatever yeah yeah and then he's like oh and he throws him in the fire and then we have the peter cushing zombie come out that night and that's one of the iconic images that you see on the on the on the cover where he just comes up and he's fucking crazy looking he goes to the house he gets the guy, and he, you know, next day the father finds him who's been kind of complicit in this, and then there's a note saying, like, you know, you were mean, you were bad, you had no heart, whatever, and then he opens it up more and sees that the Peter Cushing had ripped his heart out, you know, yeah, yeah. freaky, freaky. So we have to get through these. That's the, that, that's what, um, the third one? That's, yeah. Yeah. Poetic Justice from The Haunt of Fear, number 12, from yeah. 1952. Also, like, just in that one, it's also, like, I, I gather that the, the two men who live in a house together... That played James and Edward Elliot are the supposed father, to be son. father and son, yeah. but there's a weird. There's it, a weird it comes off because they're but he's because the son is an adult. Yeah, it kind of comes off like a little more than it might be some other kind of relationship going on. There. Yeah, that not, we don't, not father and son, but and uh, then uh, next one is wish you were here, and this is the story that they offered Peter Cushing. This guy's a real asshole, and he's he's fucked around with some money. It's basically the beginning of Sorcerer with the French guy, William Freakins, and he's like, you know, you're going to either go bankruptcy because of all the dodgy dealings you've done, or you got to, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, sell I, your rich stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think the the... I mean, it becomes what we were talking about earlier, which is like a loose adaptation of the monkey's yeah. paw. And I think the, this one feels the most... To me, feels the most like the television show. Feels the most creep showish. Yeah, you know the other ones have a very British thing about them, but like the the like the gore of this one, which is basically like there's this figurine, and uh, they make a wish on it. Okay, because uh, they're like we're gonna sell everything we have in our house because they've been all over the world, and the wife's like, remember when we got this one from this really weird Hong Kong shop that had gizmos as well, yeah. and the dealer said to be careful, use it wisely, and then she's like, oh, I never noticed this. This, you know, carving on the bottom, and she reads it, and then three wishes or whatever, and she, she automatically wishes the first wish is like. It's just one of those classic, yeah. like, you know, be careful what you wish for. And I don't remember what the first wish was. I, I got so confused. Her first by, wish is my, um, my story ten. Yeah, I know. It's all her first. Her first wish is she wishes for a shitload of money, and then the lawyer calls him right back up. Get down here. I got to talk to you. So he gets in his car. Now in the book, as soon oh, as he's yeah, about yeah. to leave. He opens his driveway. There is a motorcyclist with the visor down blocking his view, and he starts beeping like, are you deaf? Get out of the way. The motorcyclist lets him go, but then it automatically starts this chase, where in the movie, he leaves, and then the bike kind of follows him, and then he realizes the guy's following him. But in the book, it's a little more of a tension. This guy's speeding after him, and he's got a really fancy car. He's going to take these side roads. The motorcyclist won't be able to get by, and then when he sees him in the rear view, 
the cyclist puts the visor up and you see it's a skull, you know. Yeah, yeah. And this is a little weird because it's closer and it lo- you don't really know. In the book, it's a little more presented that it's a, it's a modern demon or something like a coming out. And because he's speeding away, he gets into this crash and kills himself. And the money comes. Well, no. And then it's, it, it's the, the lawyer is told because the guy had his card. So the lawyer is like, oh, oh, he just, instead of calling, he runs over the wife's house, tells her. And then when he's telling her, he's like, listen, I don't want to. And she's all broken up. And she's like, he's like, you know, he's got a big insurance policy. So it's going to fix everything. And you're going to be pretty well off. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. The, like the classic, be careful what you wish for. She wanted money. And the, but the money comes in the guise of this uh, insurance policy. Yeah. Now, uh, notable Roy uh, Dotrus, people of our generation would know him from the Beauty and the Beast television show and the movie Cutting Edge. Nice. <laughs> and who is that? He plays the... Um, I think he's the lawyer. The lawyer in it. And yeah. So she's... The wife is still so messed up. She says, I, but I, you know, he's, he's gone. So she grows and quickly she says... She, talks to you remember the monkey claw it's like you know that it's like yeah, the faculty yeah. the self-reference remember invasion of the body snatchers what did they do here well he, he's like remember that story and then before the lawyer knows it she wishes i wish him back exactly how i was immediately before the crash and then all yeah. of a sudden doors open paul bearers bring this coffee he's like don't he's, he he's was like, horribly mangled <laughs> yeah what the fuck he's someone that i want from i want him back from before the crash or just before the crash so she brings him in and the pallbearers they open the thing and he's perfectly fine and they're like i thought he was horribly mangled and the pallbearers like no he died he, of a heart attack. He died of a heart attack before the crash. So he's dead. And she's like, fuck! <laughs> so, so she wished him back yeah, just she, before the instance of the heart. But since he was already dead when he crashed, th- he's, he's he, still dead. He just looks perfectly fine. So the, the Paul Bearers leave. The lawyer's like, she's like, get out. And he's like, I, I got it. So he leaves. And he's still outside having a cigarette trying to just comprehend what the fuck just happened. <laughs> and like, she quickly, w- without knowing, wishes the third, I want him alive. I want him back. Forever. Yeah. He starts fucking screaming, comes out. He's alive. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he's like, ah! Lawyer runs he's back into the house. Involving fluid. Lawyer's still there. He's like, you wished him back. He's like, he's been embalmed. You know, he's got this shit burning inside of him. So he, the thing, scre- it's almost like reanimator shit. You know? Yeah, yeah. He's screaming, yelling. So she grabs a knife fucking samurai sword that they got in the she Orient. She wants to put him out of his misery. Yeah, cuts him the hell up and all that kind of thing. And then she realizes, the lawyer looks down, he's still alive because she's wished him back. So every piece of him is still moving for all of eternity. Yeah. You know. It's so definitely the, the grossest one. Yeah. And that's the, that's the next story. So the, and it's, that was that guy. I uh, wish you were here, and I say, Haunt, Haunt of Fear 22. The yeah. last one, Blind Alley, is from Tales from the Crypt number 46. Yeah. From February, March of 1955. is probably my second favorite story of the... What was the first? The Peter Cushing? The Peter Cushing one. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what my favorites were. That's interesting. I'd have to... But anyway, I'm sorry. And this one is about... Uh, it's kind of... you know, Blind people living in a home. New management comes... And he's a, he's an ex major. He has a dog with him. He's very authoritarian. You know, this is how we're gonna do things. He starts cutting back immediately on there. You know, he's trying to save money out of in the budget they have. So he's turning the heat off at eight o'clock at night. He's cutting down their rations. He's he's they don't have enough money for new blankets, but he's throwing out all the old blankets because they were ratty. Uh, and these blind people are suffering, and they try to bring them to like their complaints, and they're like, "F off! This is how I'm going to run the facility." Yeah. Meanwhile, he's bought brand new things in his place. He's eating steak while they're yeah. eating slop. He's got you know really pricey paintings on the walls, and they're like, "Why don't you sell one of these damn paintings?" And they're like, "Don't you tell me what to do?" So ends up happening is these people are suffering. They're, they think they're eating like dishwasher, dishwater. Then one night, one of one of the the, the blind people are so sick, they go get the. The, the, the headmaster he comes over by the time they get back there he's dead 
and he's and like, he's like he's dead. And they're so pissed off at him, they're gonna get their revenge. So what they do is they 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 start saving their in the book they're getting pieces of sausage, but they start saving their mm-hmm. rations and they ration. They get some bacon. Yeah, they, so that they can draw the dog yeah, out in the he's bo- got a because he's got a dog that kind of protects them when they get yeah when they a get, little bit feisty with him. And uh, in the book, the dog's name is Brutus, but in the movie, it's Shane. And they lure the dog downstairs and they lock it in a coal bin room. And then they lure him downstairs. They lock him in the other coal bin room. And he realizes the dog's next door. And he's like, what are you doing? And then the, the blind people, for two days, they work on outside. You hear building and s- scrapping and all this. Uh, in the book, the next day, the attendants, like, what's going on? They're like, you know, go mind your business. Go do your thing. And they're like, okay. You know, they don't really put up a fight. Where in the movie, they lock him in, I think, in a closet. Yeah. So at the, end of the, at the end of the couple days, it's also nice. The One redeemable thing about the guy is the guy's like, please feed my dog. Don't hurt my dog. And then he's like, you know, the, the dog's going to get wild. You know, he's going to go mad. If you don't feed it, he'll kill. So and the, then the blind guys, we know, you know. <laughs> and it's also worth knowing the main blind guy. As an actor named Patrick McGee. Yes. And uh, he's probably known best for uh, his role in A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Uh, but he's the husband, right? When they go in that house. Yeah, and they beat the crap out of him and they do all that. That's him. But he was also in Barry Lyndon, and he's also in Lucio Fulci's uh, version of The Black Cat. Nice. So he's a familiar face. So they, they, they after the couple days and him saying, taunting, the, you know, telling him, you know, what's going to happen or, you know, you better watch out, they open the door. And he's in darkness, the major. He's trying to find his way out. He's, he goes down this corridor, and they turn the lights on. Well, he's going down the corridor feeling, and he, and he feels the wall. He cuts himself, and he, he feels blood. They turn the lights on, and they've got all these razor blades in this narrow corridor they made, this wooden passage. Barrett razor blades, which is, I guess, a big endorsement for Barrett razor blades. <laughs> and, you know, he with the lights on, he's able to get through as much as he can. He cuts himself because it gets narrow, narrow, narrower. He turns the corner, and he realizes that the the hall is leading up to the other door where the dog is, and, th- and then they have a rope. They they have it so they can open the door. The dog comes out like it's nobody's business, and evidently the dog is feral at this point. Yeah. So he tries to run. He turns his the corner to go back to where he came, and where we see the razors, and it's narrow. As he starts running, the blind guys turn the lights out. And then he hears, ah, and then the dog gets him. That's the end of it. And so to round this movie up quickly, uh, Tales from the Crypt the, those are all the stories they're all in kind of a trance in the book one of the people try to leave and go behind the guy and where the doorway is and they look down and they see something and they don't tell you what he sees but he's in such shock he's frozen and then they do like one or two more stories so at the end of this when they see him they're all kind of in a trance and what it is is down there it's like you know they're going down to hell and it's lava and they hear screaming yeah. and they're all kind of in a trance and they all kind of walk off on their own where in this they're, I feel like they're semi-forced yeah. you know and the twist in this is that no we're you, not warning you yes we're punishing you for the things you've done you've already done this and then there's there's so um, this is like the last stop before hell there's precursors to or clues that this has already happened as in like I said at the beginning of this uh, Dane Joan Collins is wearing the brooch that's already given to her yeah you know so there's there are kind of clues that this has happened interesting the, like the last story the, I think the major's name is Rogers in the book and the other guy uh, the second story who is the, comes back to, in the car crash his name is Maitland a lot of the names are recycled in the Vault of Horror the first story in the Vault of Horror is Rogers yeah. and there's another Maitland so it's almost kind of incestuous. And so, uh, it's it, also worth noting that the first story and all through the house and then 
uh, yeah, the last two stories, Wish You Were Here and Blind Alleys, were all later pretty uh, similarly adapted for the uh, Tales from the Crypt television show later in the eight, late 80s and yeah, early the 90s. 80s. So that's pretty cool that they all, a lot of them were, then, like you just said, were adapted. Yeah. Uh, the other two um, apparently were adapted but changed when they did it for television where the, the ones I mentioned, the first one and the last two were pretty faithful in the way they were portrayed in the television show. And the mansion that's used in the one with Peter Cushing, I think it's the one with Peter Cushing, where it's the rich people looking outside, uh, I think that's the same one that they said is used in The Omen. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? That's the uh, Wish You Were Here, right? That's the that's the um, one with... Um, Poetic Justice is Peter Cushing. Okay, so Wish You Were Here is the one with the monkey's claw. That ma- that house they used for that is the house from The Omen with uh, Gregory Peck and Lee Remick that, that the interiors are done there. So that's, um, I think that's, a, I think it's a great movie. It's I love, I love this. I love the Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. I'm not as, I wasn't as crazy about Vault of Horror when we watched it tonight. Um, not to say that it's, it's not good and not worth watching. It's totally worth watching and we'll go into it kind of quickly, but, yeah. uh, on an, on just like, you know, on a closing note for the movie Tales from the Crypt from 1972, if you haven't seen it yet, it's, you know, unfortunately we kind of spoiled a bun- bunch of it for you, but, um, I don't know. It's just there is a certain vibe to it. There's a certain well, they're British, Britishness yeah. to, to it that just gives it a different feel than the kind of stuff that I think here across the pond we get to be watch. Uh, and it's it's kind of refreshing to me yeah. to watch. It's not as much as, it. for me, like a Hammer movie. Is that that? Because it's like gothic no, time period. that's the whole different Yeah. This is more feel. modern, but it does have that British mentality or sentiment, which I think, like you said, it's, it's nice. It's a nice angle to there's interject tr- in. There's like a charm to it. Um, but the ho- the way the stories are told yeah. are great. It's just, it's, I, it's a lot of fun and... Um, I'm a big fan yeah. of, of the Tales from the Crypt movie. The tough thing for me was when reading the uh, the books, then watching the movie, I do felt like the movies were kind of cliff notes because they were going so quick. I mean, I, the running time is only like 92 minutes for Tales from the Crypt. They made it on a 170,000 pounds budget and they grossed 3 million. So that, you know, they're like, crap, we're going to do a we're going to do a <laughs> sequel to this bad boy. You know, funny enough, the reason why uh, you know, only like one or two of the story of the five stories in the first movie are actually from Tales from the Crypt is because uh, Max Rosenberg was pulling the stories just from that little oh the Ballantine yeah reprint. like like the reprint which just had was a compilation of several stories yeah from all of the ta- from all of the C stuff so uh, he you know they didn't go back and read the entire catalog he was just pulling it from like a compilation <laughs> yeah and and also this it got good reviews critically. People liked it and all that kind of a thing. Um, and I was the one that kind of pushed for um, us to do the double feature of Volta Horror because when I got 10 or so years ago that Midnight Movies edition where they're both on the same disc yeah. or the same box set, they had Volta Horror. And I really, at the time, really loved uh, the stories in Volta Horror. I thought they were so cool in a sense of, um, I don't know, I uh, I guess when I first saw him, yeah. I, I was so intrigued by him. It's a similar thing where Vault of Horror starts. It's just guys getting on an elevator at, late at night uh, in an empty building. Like, so where are we going? Yeah, it's very. It's <laughs> the, yeah, it's all. And then you see, uh, you know, everybody gets on. You have uh, freaking Tom Baker, who's uh, Doctor Who fame. He's the fourth Doctor. He's he was also our Doctor. Yeah, he with with growing the, up with the big um his big scarf. scarf yeah. uh, he's the Doctor. I think from seventy four to eighty one and. 
to think that this came out in 73. Maybe this was his precursor of doing yeah. The Doctor. As well as he's also, there's that real big show called Little Britain, the comedy show. He does the voiceover. was Little Britain, you know. And I do um, love, I mean, there's definitely, I, there are stories that I like a lot in this one. Yeah. Um, and there's actors that I like a lot in this one. There's more recognizable faces to me for the most part in this one than that one. I do, I do like this one, but yeah. there's, it's not even that the, st- I, like I didn't, that I didn't like the stories. There was just something about the overall vibe that just didn't, yeah. uh, can, I didn't connect with quite as much as I did with tales from the crypt it's just uh, there's a feel to it that's just slightly yeah it's kind of different off. you know it, this comes out the next year 73 volt of horror the idea um, is also different in that they're talking about recurring nightmares that yeah well had. they they all get on the elevator in the opening sequence over the credits and they're trying to get out they all hit the the ground button it's all one shot and then you know every floor somebody else gets in you got five guys and instead of going to the lobby they go down to the sub basement they're like what the hell doors open and there's this room that they think looks like a club with no windows yeah, like, oh, i didn't know there was yeah, a club in what here the hell? in the book they all walk <laughs> out and then when they when they turn back and look at the elevator the the buttons are gone yeah and like what the hell and then the door's shut and they're stuck and it's kind of silly in the well it looks like we're gonna be here wow well, well, let's all can't get out yeah let's all have drinks and talk to each other <laughs> you know it's it but that's very british in their own way like, yeah it's yeah. like kind of like okay let's sit down and do nothing the difference between volta horror is there's no um like the host host there's no creeper creep creep creeper creeper there's no creeper. There's no, creeper there's no witch there's no vault you know it's just like blake said they sit around the table and they're like this reminds me of a drink what do you mean so there's then it gets going right quick yeah yeah you know also as you know i like to look at what other people what people uh, do what their other credits are sure. and so roy ward baker yeah he's the director who he directed vault tr- of horror they tried to get the original director freddie who Francis Freddie Francis he couldn't come back for whatever reason so they bring Rory Rory Ward Baker in to who direct. directed one of your movies Dion what's that he directed a night to remember in 1958 oh that's my that's my that's my shit right there <laughs> <laughs> that's my joint I know the, I love a night to remember the we, famous Titanic film. yeah off of Sir Walter Lord's book which we almost came doing it was, it was a toss-up between that and raise the Titanic yeah and you couldn't find Ray you're like let's just do a night to remember I was like no we had to do raise the Titanic but maybe one day would do raise uh, and night he to also remember. directed a movie that I love that I believe you also have an affinity for which is Quatermass in the pit from 1967 oh, yeah. uh yeah that's the Quatermaster is the that's kind of starts in the 50s the horror, hammer thing right yeah that's the quater quater master experiment maybe so he did that one that's a great but movie he did in the master in the pit yeah. which was a big influence on john carpenter sure um i fell in love with it because i watched it with the brothers hastings yeah we bring up uh, dave and steve well <laughs> even before i knew it was such an influence on carpenter but he also directed the legend of the seven golden vampires in 74 which i think is you know an infamous uh, cult classic. He directed episodes of the shows The Avengers and The Saint. Yep. He directed The Scars of Dracula in 1970, The Asylum, which Dion brought up in the 72. The Amicus movie, yep. And uh, a movie that I'm sure Dion knows well, The Monster Cl- a Monster Club from 1981. Yeah, with, with Peter Cushing, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, uh, uh, what's his face, The Father, Carradine. Yeah, so another interesting uh, filmography for a director. Um, um Asylum is very good because quickly Asylum is one of these anthology movies where it's somebody and it, it's you think about it, it's very cliched the, the the idea of this where they go to the asylum somebody's visiting and the doctor's there brings them in to greet them and then takes them around and shows them each room yeah and they're like this is a deviant whatever and then each person has a story so you have five yeah. stories or whatever and then at the end of that uh, spoiler to twist is that it's actually 
the the doctors who have the, the patients have overtaken the asylum it's the doctors in the things and you find out that the doctor that's been leading the person around is actually a, a, a lunatic prisoner and all that very good movie also I think Peter Cushing also Amicus yeah. same year as Tales from the Crypt yeah Amicus also did I think uh, 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 anthology film in 67 called called Torture Garden yes. which I believe is also uh, the they had they had this long lineage yeah. of <laughs> these kinds of movies. Two different studios. Sheppington Studios did Tales from the Crypt. This one is done by Twinktonham Studios. Um, but this is also off EC Comics. Sadly, none of these were ever redone later in the HBO show. So maybe this is ripe for picking for people if they want to redo any of these. Um, and the reason I like these because I love. Um, the stories in these. There's, there's two or three that I think are really good. We just dive right in here. Uh, there's no host or whatever. There's yeah. no Crypt Keeper. So, so they, I have this nightmare. So tell us about it. In the first story, it's, it's, it's just called Midnight Mess. Which uh, was from Tales from the Crypt number 35 from the April-May issue of 1953. And it, interesting enough, it stars um, Daniel Massey and his sister. Um, Anna Massey. Anna Massey, who was... Their father is Raymond Massey. We know Raymond Massey from Arsenic and Old Lace. He is Peter Lorre's psychopathic guy that he turned into Boris Karloff. Okay. That's Raymond Massey. He also is very famous. I think he played uh, Brigham Young in a movie. I could be wrong, but most famously, he played Abe Lincoln in an Abe Lincoln bio. Uh, He married, he had a first wife that was English, had married for 10 years from 29 to 39, had these two kids. Then was divorced, and then that's why they were brought up in England. They have English, um, you know, accents. He stayed in the states, married another woman called um, uh, Whitney Dorothy Whitney, maybe from Hamden, Connecticut. And I don't know if she's related to Eli Whitney, the uh, people who know invented the cotton gin and, and um, the assembly line. But uh, he married her in '39. They were married until her death in '82. He dies the next year in '83. And they're both interred in Beaverdale Cemetery, where my friend Chris Campitaro's family is interred uh-huh. on the Hamden-New Haven border. So it's weird to think Raymond Massey's buried there. Yeah. And then it's also, uh, for people who want to know stuff about nothing, a couple blocks over, Ernest Borgnine was born and raised on Cherry Ann Street on the Hamden-New Haven border. And his bio, he talks about they used to go back and play in the Beaverdale Cemetery. Yes. So it's crazy. So the two of them, and the brothers and sister, Massey. You would know she's in Peeping Tom. Yes. She's the lead female in Peeping Tom, but she's also in Frenzy, which is yeah, Hitchcock. The, the Hitchcock which, is a, which is an interesting, so a familiar scary, face. Uh, very interesting Hitchcock movie from yeah, his I later like years. Frenzy yeah, I like Frenzy Well, it's a later film, but yeah. I think it's kind of it's, one of his unsung Yeah, and it's gems. weird because I think it's very... It, it really showcases the British culture in a way that was of that era of the 70s, which is kind of interesting. It's also very much in line with the Italian Giallo movies. Yes, it is. It's almost like Very much so. It's his influ- homage. It's like he's influenced by the Giallo movies, which were influenced by him. Yeah, a so little love letter. So it's, so like it's weird, all self-referencing. It's a weird... Uh, uh, this one is great because it starts off with this guy who hires a pr- private detective. Private detective comes in. It's very funny. I suddenly thought the private detective was Barry Gibb. <laughs> You know, from from, yeah. um, uh, from the uh, the Bee Gees, the Bee Gees. But then when he gets closer, he looks like uh, the character Trigger from Only Fools and Horses, which is a, a British show with David Jason. But he gets this info because this guy's looking for a girl, and he's like, "Are you sure she's there?" He's like, "Yeah." And as soon as he turns around, the guy uh, cold-heartedly strangles the private detective to death and leaves him there. And in the book, there's a little more of a mess of like, you know, oh, no one will 
you know, see me or whatever. No, no, I'm here. And he gets a bus to this town. He gets to the town. And, uh, you know, in the book, it's a little more where there's no lights on. It's getting dusk. It's a really weird looking town. He runs into a guy. A guy's like, you're new here, aren't you? He's like, you better get inside before it gets dark. Goes into a restaurant. restaurant. He's like, they're like, we're closing. He's like, what do you mean? It's only dusk. And they're like, well, we all close it before dark. You're new and you got to, you know, get out of here. So he leaves. He goes and tries his sister, or the, the, the address. He knocked the first time when he got in and she wasn't there. So that's why he went to the restaurant. He comes back, knocks again. It's, it's literally dark. He goes in, he finds his sister, and he says to her, like, uh, you know, dad's died, and they haven't seen each other. They've been estranged. That's why he hired the private detective. And he says, dad's died. You know, um, you're, you, I'm letting you know, and then you're, you're the uh, heir to the fortune, unless you die. And then he stabs her to fucking death because he wants yeah. the money. It's all, it's you crazy. Know, it's very, fucked up. It's very noirish. Yeah. Also, they're all about, like, you know. PIs and stuff. And PIs and, and insurance policies and if yeah and if if he dies it's 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 you know uh, if she dies he gets it so very cold-heartedly he takes a switchblade out stabs her to death and it's funny because in the books it's very much like a hitchcock kind of a yeah uh idea where he falls and he's he's almost happy by it and he's he lays there for a minute with her and he has to untangle himself and he leaves a switchblade and he comes out it's dark he doesn't know what to do he's got another 10 or 45 minutes till the next bus so he sees the restaurants, the lights on. He said, like, what the fuck? The guy said the place was closed. So he goes in, it's packed. He sits down and uh, the, you know, the guy's like, you know, this is all a la carte. You know, we have a fixed menu. We'll, we'll just give you. And the guy's like, whatever. He gets some, you know, glass. He's like, this, this is crazy. What, this tastes weird. And the waiter's like, what do you mean? It's not the same waiter as before. Yeah. You know, and then he gets the first thing. It's soup. And then he's like, this tastes disgusting too. And the waiter's like, what do you mean? And then he's like, you know, how do you want your clots? He's yeah. like, what do you mean? You're like, how do you want your blood clots prepared? He's like, what? And then suddenly, I think the waiter realizes, we have an imposter. And, oh, shit. <laughs> and, and it's freaky because this is how I, I liked it, where they, they have these mirrors. They open the, the mirrors up, and, you, and they do a great job where he stands up, and he's the only one reflecting. Yeah, yeah. And it's great how they do it because it doesn't look like, you know, they didn't have computers then, so it had to be some sort of camera trick or some sort of composite optical printing or whatever. But it does done so well. So they grab him, and you know, and, and it's very scary because they all come up and they're all like coming towards him. And then his sister walks in, and his sister's, you know, she smiles, and you see that she has fangs. The thing I don't like about it is the next shot where all the people's fangs look really stupid. Yeah, yeah. They kind of look like saber tooths. I wish they didn't do that. It's like they gave every, they didn't have much time to give, so they just gave people to put in their mouth. You know, who can yeah. s- speak the best with it in your mouth? Okay, we'll give you the line. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then the the the, the punchline is that they have the guy hanging upside down, and they've put a beer tap in his neck, and they're they're going directly mainline in the blood. But in the U.S. edition, it's, they they cut it out. So I was going to say it's very strange. Like they a. froze it, right? And then they cut out the action. If you freeze frame it, you could see that they cut out of the frame. Yeah, it's like a the, black block. Yeah, and that's where they cut out the tap. But if you watch the trailer, you see it in the trailer. <laughs> you know, if you look really quickly, they have it still. So they, they they cut it out for the audiences. If you get the Blu-ray, I guess evidently the Blu-ray has the thing. Because the DVD does. Yeah. So that's the end of the first story. Second story is the... Uh, I was going to say the waiter that kind of... Yeah. Uh, you know, points out that he's a fraud. Reminds me of like if they did it now, you would have the guy that plays Carson on Downton Abbey. Oh yeah, play, like. <laughs> oh yeah, it's just, hello sir. Yeah, that's a very good likeness to have Carson be in there. Uh, Midnight Mess from Tales from the Crypt number thirty-five. Yeah, that was the first one. Uh, second one is the Neat Job. 
from Shock Suspenseful Stories number one, February March fifty two. Yeah, we have what's her name in here from Harry uh, from Mary Poppins. Yeah, and he uh, Glynis Johns. Yeah, and the husband in it. She is, was also in the the Batman television show. Yeah, sixty five. She, she played, played a villain, Lady she? Penelope Peace Soup, but she was in like four or five or six episodes. Yeah, I think she has a reoccurring uh, villain in that, and she's. Really well known to audiences, I think, for probably Mary Poppins, and she's yeah. done other things at the time. She plays uh, Mrs. Winifred Banks. And the husband is from Tom Thumb, and he's been in a bunch of other things as well. Um, and it's a story uh, where an older guy is finally looking to settle down, and he marries a very young woman. And it's interesting, the casting of her, because she doesn't seem as young as she reads in the book. And in the book, it's it's she's more naive, where in the movie, I ma- they make her kind of like not all there and not eccentric or... Spacey. I don't want to be insulting, but she seems kind of like, you know, um, and he very immediately is a neat freak where he's like, you got to do things this way, this way. And and she scares her and everything in its place. Now in the book, this reads like a, uh, a book about domestic violence or psychological. It's very, um, from her point of view, it's very sad, very scary where she's like up all night after he yells at her. She doesn't know what to do. She's tippy-toeing around him. So it's very much like the abuse you see in families. Walking on eggshells. Yeah. And then when he tries to, at one point he tries to make her dinner and then they don't have soup, uh, the sauce in, but it's labeled that they do. So she, he, he flips out in the book. He leaves and he stay, goes, gets dinner and stays out the night and she has to clean. So she cleans everything up and she's trying to keep everything perfect the way he wants it. And then at one point she has everything right. And, uh, it's it's a really funny thing where it's like a uh, uh, it's almost like a rock going down a hill where she leaves like a little water stain on the coffee because she doesn't a coffee table because she doesn't have a coaster and that leaves her trying to clean it up where she spills something she breaks something she yeah. goes downstairs and tries to get a nail to put a th- the painting back in she destroys the guy's workplace he had everything all perfectly up in the in the basement at his workbench and then he discovers her and she's like so. Uh, and he starts yelling at her like, "Look what you did! You're the fucking, you're the fucking, you're the fucking." So she just takes a <laughs> hammer and she hits him in the head, and that's the second uh, U.S. cut where it's just a freeze frame. Yeah, you know, because they're trying to, I guess, keep the violence down for a PG rating. They restored it in the Blu-ray again. So then the ending is where in the book is the police come, but in this it's like she, she's like, "See, everything's in its place," and, you know. And they do the, and this to me is very much like Tales from the Crypt, like yeah, such yeah. a. Tales from the Crypt story where that it turns and you realize she's she's completely uh, cut him up, disemboweled him, whatever, and then she has jars of his eyes, his new yeah, nose, his organized it just the his, way he would want. Yeah, his hands, his brain, you know. So that's the second story, which which um, I like. Yeah, uh, that one feels the most Tales you know, from the Crypty. Yeah. Uh, the next story, the trickle kill you. Yeah, I loved when I first saw this because I'm I'm I love the idea of the. Asia, the Orient, and that that kind of these sto- these mat stuff that could be magic or whatever, and it's about this uh, magician wife and magician team who are traveling the Orient trying to find these elusive new tricks for their magician show, magic show, and they're in a India. Where they're in Budapest, maybe, or I forget where they say in the book they are, and um, or Calcutta, maybe. And the uh, magician is played by Kurd Jurgens, yes, who, who is kind of most familiar, I think, to us. Our generation, as uh, he's the bad guy, right? And the yeah. spy who loves me. Yeah, yeah, he's very, and he's got very much like an accent, like that guy Uder, the guy who's uh, in Blade. He's the head guy that the vampire that oh, what's Udo his fi- Yeah, he's kind of got that accent. He's German. He was born maybe in uh, I forget the name of the town, uh, Munich. 
But uh, he's, to me, almost like a poor man's George Saunders. But him and his wife, and it's weird because his wife is dubbed by, um, uh, what's her face? Uh, Honor Blackman. And I don't know why they dubbed her. And this is her last movie as well. Dawn Adams, I think the woman, the actress. Yeah. It's, it's, this is her last movie until she dies. And both these movies have performances by people who it's their last performance before they die years later uh, for whatever reason, natural causes or whatever. But she's dubbed by Honor Blackman. And if you listen, it fucking, you know, it's Honor Blackman. And it's like weird because Honor Blackman has such a particular voice. I don't know why they would have dubbed her. Yeah. Because he has an accent and they have him fine. But... They're in this like bizarre street bazaar in Calcutta or whatever, and they see this trick being done, and they realize first, oh my God, this guy's making a kid disappear in a thing, and uh, in a basket, and then he puts a, a a knife through his his cheek, and then, you know, the guy walks out and, and ruins the trick and shows everybody. Yeah, and, which is kind of shitty. Yeah, well, that's just because he's a magician. Yeah, and, and he's and he's and he's, he's blowing this guy's secrets. Yeah, and this guy is living off the the tips he gets doing this on the street, and he ruins it for this guy. And the guy's like, you know, he's now he's a fraud to the audience. The audience leaves. And that guy, the Indian guy, uh, is in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He plays Omar. Yes. But so, uh, he's got uh, a, a, a sidekick, a female. Yeah, like a, who's watching or kind of... In the book, she's a little more mysterious. She's not present. She's she's not part of the act. Yeah. You know, and then the next day, it's that... Um, uh, he goes out on his own, like, looking through stuff, and he's lured into an alley. He doesn't even know why. And he finds her in this... Uh, you know, almost like this dead end alley, and she's there with a with a f- like a flute or a, a yeah. recorder, you call it, and she's playing. And then inside, he thinks it's going to be a snake. It's this hemp rope that comes up, and it goes completely to the top. She stops playing. It's 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 taunt, and then she's able to get on it and she climbs it. Yeah. And then she gets off, comes down, plays again, and the rope goes back. And the guy, he looks at it. He's like, "There's no what's the trick?" He doesn't, you know. He's like, "I'll pay you whatever you want." And she's like, "I won't, um, I won't. What do you call it? I don't want any money for the trick." And then uh, she's like, well, you know, he's like, listen, my wife is ill. Can you come to can show her the trick in the, in the hotel? And she's like, okay, she agrees. So he, in, in the movie, it's, or in the book, they, he goes back and tells the wife, I can't, you know, I can't figure out, it's the best trick I've ever seen. And they're trying to figure out what to do. He's like, I've offered her all this money in the world. She won't take it. And then they get drunk together at night. And then they realize there's only one way we can do this. So they're complicit in a little more where they're, yeah. you know. Uh, so she acts ill. Next day, woman comes with the trick. The the little lady does the trick for him, and then in the middle of the trick, where they don't even ask her, they don't you know try to get the the uh, the, the, the hook. They yeah. kill her. They stab her, <laughs> and then they they start. Then the the rope goes down, and they're trying to figure out what to do. He sits down. He starts noodling on the recorder or the thing, the flute. The rope starts going up, and then the woman's like, you know, she. Grabs, she's like, it'll hold my weight. And this is what I loved about this story when I first saw it is that she climbs the thing going up and she's at the top and they're like, this is going to be amazing, this trick. You know, we're going to bring this back and this is going to be our fucking showliner. This is going to be our prestige. And then she looks up and you don't know what she sees. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's kind of, uh, you could tell they had a lower budget because they, um, you know, it, uh, she just disappears. But I love that something happens and she sees, then the ceiling, it gets red and starts, you know, it's like starts dripping. And then. Uh, the rope comes alive and kills him. And then the last thing you see is that, that the ropes hung him and the guy's back, the other guy's back performing on the street, the guy he outed, like it was nothing. And then next to her, him is the woman that they killed. Almost like it was almost like a deity or a presence, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I really dug that story. And then as we're wrapping up here, we'll, we'll, we'll shoot through these. Um, 
The next story is what? Bargain and Death? Bargain and Death from Tales from the Crypt number 28 from 1952. And this is the guy's name is Maitland, which is also um, another name from the first story, Tales from the Crypt. And yeah. Interesting in this that the guy is reading a Tales from the Crypt novelization at some point. <laughs> but it's just quickly about a guy who's, it's again, insurance fraud, where he realizes he has this stuff where he can take it. It'll act like he's dead. They're going to bury him. And his partner, he says, you know, uh, I left you as the heir. Just bear, unbear, uh, dig me up in 48 hours, 24 hours when I revive this stuff. And then we'll share the insurance money. Or next door, these two guys are medical students. Like, we need a body. You know, we need, to, like, the old days. We, we had our own cadaver. We could we can, fucking do all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah, and, and, and we can, you know, pass our medical courses. So then, uh, boarding house life. Guy dies. Landlady finds him next door. They come running because she screams. He's made it like he's died of natural causes, but he's actually injected himself with this stuff. And then they look at each other like, oh, we've got a body now. Cut to guys buried. Uh, you know, he's supposed to be being dug up by his partner, where his partner's like, little does he know I'm not going to bury himself up, but I'll drive by the cemetery to wish him goodbye and wave at him while I leave. The two medical students come with the grave digger. They, they dig up the body. The grave digger's a fa- famous person in British comedy and stuff like that because yeah. he's got a little comic relief. And those two people, the two guys are on a medical show that people will know in the 70s, a, a British medical show. So it's kind of funny that right when... And this is one's a little zany, and I guess people can find this one campy. You know, it, it's it's a little silly in that respect. Where, uh, you know, as they open the coffin, the guy jumps up because he's been he's been running out of oxygen in the in the coffin. The two medical students run in horror. They run out of the cemetery into the street, and as the other guy's passing to wave goodbye to his partner, he sees him swerves and goes into a tree. Yeah. And it's funny that they don't even care. They're just like, "Wow, <laughs> you know, it's they don't know who he is." And then the the, the twist is the gravedigger comes back and says, "Oi, come on back!" You know, he says like, "You know, here's your body. I want my money. Sorry about the head." And what happened was he must have just hit the fucking guy with a shovel when the guy came up, and that's the end of it. So I love the story. Yeah, I just and it's very to me very much like a tale from the crypt story but it's just it's you know it, it is a little hokey because it's it's a it's jokey yeah, you know yeah uh what do we got last one is this uh, the last one already i think so drawn and qu- it is yeah okay drawn and quartered from yeah. tales from the crypt number 26 from 1951 and this is the one that has the tom baker yeah, the, yeah the, the, and this one's great and i was looking at it and i couldn't tell if tom baker actually grew up a beard because in close-ups, I couldn't see if it was fake, like spirit gum or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, but Tom Baker, it's this story where he's... he's this is very reminiscent of, like, other stories. Yeah. It's kind of like a... It's very classic. Of a date, like a sell your soul to the devil type thing, or... Um, but basically, he's an artist who was failed, and he goes off to wherever the fuck. Like living in exile in Haiti. Yeah. And he's living in, like, in a hut in the middle of nowhere in Haiti, drawing, trying to... Trying to get his his mojo back, yeah, you know, and then some guy shows serendipitously, yeah, he's like, "Bye, Joe, yeah, hey, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry Lewis, what are you doing here? Yeah, you like a chap? Yeah, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I was here. He was, he's like, I was in uh, Corpus Christi or what? I'm not, or I forget which town in Haiti, and that's not Corpus Christi's in uh, freaking um, what the other place. And he's like, uh, uh, somebody mentioned you, yeah, yeah, in a bar, and he's like, you said you were here, and he's like, and he's like, you're, he's like, how you doing? Why are you doing? What are you doing here? And Tom Baker's like, well, you know, I'm trying to get my mojo back. What the fuck? And he's like, but you know, your stuff's selling in, in London for thousands of dollars, and he comes to find out that two art critics and, and a dealer uh, told him his shit sucked. Gave him the I bought all his shit. Told him his shit sucks. And that's what made him leave and go on exile, where they've been turning his shit around and making a fuckload of a profit. Yeah, so the critics, they're art critics, so they're saying his shit's really great. 
So yeah. that uh, drives up the value. Yeah, but and they that, told him that it sucks, and they bought all that. So it was this big conspiracy to get him. So he's pissed now. Quickly, as we're because we we're all winding down before my dad gets home. Two things. Uh, well, I'll wait. I'll leave one of them for the end of the show. So that's Tom a broader Baker, question. Doctor Who, but also the art dealer is very familiar. Yes, Marcus Brody. He plays Marcus Brody in the Raiders of the yeah. Lost Ark. He's also in Trading Places, of course. Of course, yeah. Denholm Elliott. Yeah, he and he's one of the major bills in this too, but he's only got like five or six lines. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the story I was alluding to before where technically, if you look at the blind man story, right? The blind man story is they're wronged and they're, they then do this really horrible thing to get their revenge on that guy. Yeah. Here, Tom Baker's wronged, and he's doing something horribly to get his revenge on them. So why is he the bad guy in this story? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, yes, he he's doing... Because he ends up getting his, his own come up. Come up yeah, his you own know, So I wonder if that rule works for everybody else in all these other stories. And my other question was going to be was, do you wonder if everybody else involved in these stories are going through their own little hell because of their inclusion you get me yeah you know other people who were like the wife or this or that or the people who are maybe they're in their own little hell having this happen to them but tom baker in the book he's always it's like i walk with a zombie that movie where he's always hearing these drums he because he's so close he's always hearing and in the movie it makes it sound like they're not non-diegetic where in the book it's very much like you can hear them doing these it's the drums are diegetic where these people are doing the voodoo yeah. practices in the woods so tom baker goes and it's funny we're in the movie it's i guess it's low budget like he opens a door and he walks <laughs> into the, or it's like in the movie so i want to buy some voodoo yeah in the book it's like he goes to a, a, a village in the middle of in the in the woods and they're all like oh my god a white man what's he doing here and he finds the local voodoo doctor goes inside he goes i want to buy voodoo and they're like why he's like a revenge and it's like Yo, are you you know you're an artist and in the book, he's got like lava in in the bowl, and he's like, "Stick your hand in." He's like, "I don't want to. It'll kill him." He's like, "If you want the voodoo, stick your hand in," because he thinks he's just going to get a voodoo doll or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's like, "What? I got a doll or something?" Yeah. Shit? So he sticks his hand in, and it, it's perfectly cold, even though you know it's boiling water or whatever. And then they then the guy says, "Go home and do what you do. Go draw." Yeah. He's like, "You don't need a doll. You're an artist." Yeah. So he goes home and tell he him discovers that when he paints or draws. That it can, you know, if he draws something that's real, that he can, like, alter it. Like, he draws a piece of bread, and he erases the corner, and then, like, it's a piece of bread that's on the ground that he's drawing. So then a a rat comes in and eats the corner out. So he realizes that if he draws something, then he... And then he, like, alters it or cuts it up or besmirches it or... The faces it, it'll really happen to yeah, whatever yeah. he's doing. So, so he's like, this goes, is great. He goes back to England, and he finds out that these guys are being uh, jerks, and so he, create- he confronts them and says, you guys are all, I'll get my revenge, and like, well, go fuck your mother, we don't care. You know, <laughs> so they draw- all admit to it, too, so right? So he takes a lot of time, draws some, paints some beautiful portraits yeah, of them. of the three of them. By the way, at the same time, he was drawing his own self-portrait. Yeah. He finished he's, doing he's, that in Haiti. Yeah, he, sh- he should have stopped. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another thing. Dude, I was wondering, does that mean it's grandfathered in? But I guess because he finished it afterwards. That's my guess. Yeah. Because he finishes it. So, because it was more of a sketch. Well, he's got the voodoo curse. So he does a little Dorian Gray action where he buys a safe, puts the his own painting in the safe, and locks the to safe. To keep it safe. Yeah. Because he realizes if something happens to it, I guess it could happen to him. Yeah. So then he takes two or three days without mm-hmm. eating or food or water, draws these beautiful 
portraits of the three guys that he yeah. wants revenge. Blinds with. one of the dudes by crazy. punching his eyes out of the po- portrait, and then the, the, the guy's cheating on his wife, and he's like, "I'm sorry, honey, but it's the '70s. It's the 20th century. We should be able to." <laughs> and she has something on the table. I don't know why, which she would just keep whatever. She throws it in his eyes. Bur- it's like yeah, throwing it's acid. Ass. Yeah. <laughs> Blinds a glass him. Full acid sitting on the table. Yeah. Next guy, he's like, you know, uh, and he say, he, and Tom Baker has these things because you did this, I'll do this, and he takes his hand, rips yeah. his hands off, and this thing. The next part of this guy where it's like, this was my fear. Remember in art class growing up, you had the big cutter? The paper cutter. Oh, my God. And they always used to say, be careful what you do because, you know, God forbid if you 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 shoot your eye out, kid, you know? And it was... um, so this guy is being a jerk to like some assistant who's trying to cut the way. He's like, you don't do it like that. You do it like this. He's got this giant like guillotine style yeah, paper cutter, paper cutter, cutting paper, and then and, he, uh, so he ends up accidentally chopping his hands off. Both his hands off are fucking terrible. And then the last guy, which is Marcus Brody, he he he's like, I'll wait a day. And all this stuff happens goes out in the papers about what happened. He goes to Marcus Brody with Marcus Brody's painting. And he says, and Marcus Brody pulls a gun out, and Marcus Brody's like, "I'm gonna fucking kill you." And he's then it's like, and, and then it's pretty cool. Where then he, he puts the he puts the watch down. He's like, "You'll be dead in two minutes." And he pulls the gun out, and he takes a sharpie out and just puts a puts a round hole on his in in, the, in, his, in his forehead. And then Marcus Brody all, evidently starts to turn, and he shoots himself in the face. In the book, he just leaves his painting there, but in here, he leaves his watch and the painting. But it's weird because the the secretary let him in. Yeah. yeah. So there's evidence that he's been there, but. So he's so happy he does that, but then all of a sudden he can't breathe. He's like, "What the fuck?" And just, so he runs home and he realizes that he that it's the asphyxiation. His, his painting is running out of oxygen. <laughs> yeah. So he he he, uh, he he gets the thing out, and you know he's sporting like a very much like a Donald Sutherland, like early Jeff Goldblum kind of look in this. <laughs> you know, he's like he's tall and he's kind of like you know like a like a got a little bit of a fro going. Yeah, he's huge got the fro. Beard. You know, so. He realizes he left his watch there, but he's, he's took his painting out and he put it on the easel over there. And, and in the background, he's got like a little, it's in his art studio, he's got a little like, uh, a, what do you call that, menagerie outside. And, up, and above that, across the way, there's a guy doing construction. He's painting something on, on scaffolding. So good old Tom Baker Lee runs out to try to go back and get his watch from What's-His-Face's office before he's discovered. In that time, the guy painting on the scaffolding knocks some turpentine, as you do, off. Falls through the window onto his painting and it's destroys half the painting's face and then what happens is Tom Baker's running out in the street because he's trying to get a cab to get back he trips falls big lorry truck runs over him crushes his fucking head but in the book it's that his face just melts in front of somebody which is yeah. you know he's like ah, no, I mean, can't do that yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's exactly you don't have a budget <laughs> so this ends and they're all they all realize like you know the, all these stories they're like oh god you know this is did this really happen whatever and the, another What's, door opens or the, no the, the elevator starts binging yeah. Red doors open and it opens to a cemetery, and they all kind of realize in a trance that they're that this didn't these aren't like dreams, these are actually things that have gone on and happened, and uh, they're reliving it. And they all start walking out kind of in a trance to this to their graves. And what's sad is that if you look at if you Google Vault of Horror, uh, there's a lot of publicity lobby card shots of this really awesomely done. Uh, makeup work of the four of them in the cemetery with skeletons. Yeah. You know? So they all walk out in front of the German guy from the rope thing, the magician, and they all kind of, from his point of view, he sees their backs, they disappear by their graves. And then he kind of says to himself or to us, he's like, you know, he he lays out the twist like, you know, we're doomed. Yeah, these weren't dreams, this shit really happened, and we're stuck in purgatory, and we're going to relive these events. 
yeah, over and over every again. night this is every night this is fucking happening but it's weird because i think that that was just they the it was just another shot they i don't know why they cut it out but you know what i mean it's just yeah. a reversal of when he's looking at their backs the reversal must have been them ske- their skeletons, which is a great, great. Yeah. But nobody says they can find this footage, and it's not in any cut. Although there's, you know, like I said, there's lobby cards and frame grabs of all this. It looks amazing. Yeah. And then the last bit is this guy turns, and it's no longer a club or a room. It's a mausoleum, and that's where his coffin is. And he walks, and he disappears into the mausoleum, and then it shuts. Yeah. And that's the end of that one. That last story also feels so... Tales from the Crypt. Oh, the Tom Baker like one? A, like the television show. Yeah, yeah. Like there's an episode with Leah Thompson where she plays a uh, a hooker and she kills some dude and then she goes to the pawn shop to get money and the pawn owner's like, I don't need any of that shit. He's like, but you have something of value, your beauty. Oh, I remember that one. And yeah. he makes like a cast of her face and he's like, you have three months to, because it's a pawn shop, to come back and get your beauty. And she goes and she like marries some rich dude, but he she murders him and then yada yada. But the idea is that she leaves a gun and then she's now old because he gave her her beauty. Yeah, just that that, that last story kind of reminds me so much of the uh, that one. Yeah, of we- those kinds of stories which you know we grew up with in the television series yeah. or in these anthology television shows kinds of storytelling. And I think the reason why I liked Vault of Horror so much, I mean, I do agree with you. I think um, uh, Tales from the Crypt is better, but I like the stories. I love the yeah. Rogue one. I love the vampire one at the beginning. I like the vampire you know, one. And then and the, I love the last one. Yeah, the last one is very good. The other one I think would have been good if they didn't play it for laughs, you know, yeah. uh, for a little comic relief. And of course, you know... And I think it would have helped if they had a Crypt Keeper or a Vault Keeper in sure. it. You know? Sure. But, you know, they this then these movies and the and the EC comics go on to uh, influence people like George Romero and Stevie King, who go on to make a creep show together. And even Romero says that, you know, Night of the Living Dead was influenced by his love for the EC comics. Carpenter says that the fog EC comics definitely influenced the fog. So there, and that looks like an EC comic story with these, you know, these guys coming back for revenge off a ship and they're, you know, they're in the fog and you can't see them and they're pirate. I mean, fucking, I mean, that's a, that's a Halloween movie. If I've ever heard of one, (laughs) you know, with, with, uh, what's his face? Um, Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook, who I saw live doing his uh, Mark Twain play, but it's it got that you know they got the the crawl. I mean, it's so great. Yeah, you know, and it's it's we were gonna go try to. I mean, we ran out of time, but we were gonna talk a little bit about the to- the Tales from the Crypt show and all the some of the episodes. My favorite episode, as I always say, is that Morton Downey Jr. one, which is kind of. Um, relevant nowadays where he goes live into a haunted house on TV almost like Ala Geraldo's uh, Capone's vault and he's killed on live TV because the the ghosts get him which is yeah we talk a little bit about it in Predator 2 yeah and that goes back to a EC comic story called Ghost Hunt which is the same thing guy goes uh, and I think we leave I think we also put the link in Predator 2 uh, of the actual original suspense radio play they did a version of it where the guy's live going um, on a radio into the haunted house. But what they did was the famous person who's in that episode is a famous person who was did live game shows. Yeah. So people know it's almost like nowadays you get whoever, you know, who's doing these game shows to do the episode. And that's off a short story. But it's like they were so good, the Tales from the Crypt, because... And I wonder now if you view them kind of hokey because they're I dated mean, 90s. I think even then that they, there, was a, there was a campiness to yeah, them. But it was purpose. part of their charm, yeah. you know? I mean, obviously you had the, the amazing like animatronic puppet of the Crypt Keeper. Sure. And so you had a little bit of humor at the 
tail at the top at the bottom, but I think that you know opened the door to have a slightly more can I wouldn't say hokey, but campy yeah. feel to it, which was part of the charm of yeah. the show. And it had a great budget, so all the 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 gore was very good. Yeah, you know, they usually had tons kinds of, of twist endings. <laughs> yeah. You know, those, you know. Uh, that were usually, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. But that was part of, like I said, and that was I th- part of the show. I don't know the ratio, but I think the majority of them were from the original comics, which is really awesome to think that, like, you know, all these ones are actual kind of, you yeah. know. And then the draw of having the big mega stars in every episode. Definitely worth checking out again. I hear they might be doing a new one. I don't know if how what that means. But then it gets so popular, it runs from 89 to 96, that they do... They do two movies. They do a Bordello of Blood, and they do Demon Knight. Demon Knight, and then they even do like a kids kind of. It was show. like a cartoon, but yeah. I only know it because it came out on DVD and like seeing it in the stores back when you would go to a store yeah. and look. And I don't. And look I, for so I missed that, but that also I think rejuvenated. You think a look at the '90s. Uh, I was a little too old at the time, but Goosebumps were huge. R.L. Yeah. Stein, and he says he was directly influenced by EC Comics and doing similar stories, but just a little more kid friendly, not as dark. Yeah. His stories, as well as we had Nickelodeon's "Are You Afraid of the Dark," which was basically the same thing. Sure. Them going around a campfire, the Midnight Society, and telling stories. Arthur, you know, for uh, kids your age. So they they were given yeah, that was a big thing in the '90s. You know that that revitalization. So um, I hope we've done them. T- some justice and we got a little rush there so yeah i think we bit off a little more than we could chew for tonight yeah, with our time frame and i hope it didn't sound more like us just given the plot sy- sy- synopsis of them but they were they're very good and and the the idea of doing them together was that it was almost like one big movie because they're so connected conducive that you know by the same company back to back you know and uh reading the novelizations if you have a chance we always um suggest it but go get jack uh Olick's novelizations because there's so much more uh beneficial or there's so much more in it yeah you know um but we hope you're enjoying uh we hope you enjoyed our, our episode on ec comics and everything like that and we hope you're enjoying episode two of our epic 2019 horror movie extravaganza month of horrors uh we'll be back uh not in one in two weeks but in one week we'll be back again and we'll be uh give you another uh, horror movie for the month uh i also just want to give a quick shout out to john uh he has a podcast called Recon Cinemation. That's yeah. definitely worth checking out. One of looking, our friends, uh, listeners. Uh, if uh, if you're looking for a new movie podcast after you're done listening to ours, check on check out Recon Cinemation. I it was in California, and some of our listeners were very hospitable, and yeah. so I'm very appreciative to everybody that uh, kind of hung out. So check Joe. his show out. Of course, Dion's got his book, uh, Blood in the Streets. Uh, which is available on Amazon from other book retailers or from Dion directly at DionBaya.com. Uh, I've got Scored to Death, conversations with some of Horror's greatest composers at all the same places except for ScoredToDeath.com. And uh, Cuts from the Crypt. Uh, I have my Halloween episode is out right now for Cuts from the Crypt where I play nice. music from all movies that have a Halloween theme or take place around Halloween time. That's pretty cool. And, and you uh, have it out early enough that you can enjoy it in the month of October. Yeah, I didn't. before. was either put it out at the end of September or put yeah. it out like right before Halloween. So I give like you this little lead up time. That's great. That's great. Um, we also give a shout out to clnsmedia.com. We're partnered with them doing some good stuff. Uh, go check them out, CLL at clnsmedia.com. They do some good stuff there. Uh, like we said, we'll be back in one week with another exciting installment 
Um, we hope you're liking everything, and um, I guess uh, I, we should have like a real fancy like until next time <laughs> with the organ. Like, <laughs> watch what you do on Saturday night movie sleepovers. Later. This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If you receive warning of an enemy attack, get to the nearest fallout shelter promptly. But if you're caught in the open and there's a brilliant nuclear flash in the distance, take cover immediately. Even miles away, you may be exposed within seconds to a searing heat wave from the explosion, followed by a blast wave and flying debris. Get into the nearest building immediately or into a ditch or culvert beneath a parked car behind a tree or a wall, anything solid that will give you some measure of protection.